fire, leave your father and I'm trying, trying to escape this futile. Ooh, child, this kind of jungle is too wild. That's why we got borders to stop. It's too adaptive, the situation is too shy. And though the road is rocky, I'm ready to try. The next mile, the brave side to the blind man. It's down to the left child. We will survive in this country wilderness. Swimming through the waters of Babylon like a rebel fish. Jogging is specialist, predatory and survivalist. Spinning heaven, fire from his lips. Welcome listeners to time for an awakening on Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennia. This is history and the current events program from a cultural perspective. We find this program necessary because Hosea 4, 6 states, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. But we as a people will turn this around. Proverbs 4, 7 states, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. With all that I get and get an understanding. Again, welcome to the program this evening with your host, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. The number to reach us to join the conversation this evening is 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We're streaming live at several locations. You can go to timeforanawakening.com, which is the homepage, and catch the live audio at that location. You can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash timeforanawakening. That's www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening and it will be streaming there live also you can go to a bb2me.com that's a-b-i-b-i-t-u-m-i.com forward slash time for an awakening and there ought to be streaming there live from ghana or you can download the tune in radio app to any of your devices tune in radio is a free app in that tune in radio app just type in time for an awakening in the search engine you'll see the icon and you can stream the program live even into your car if you had a Bluetooth capabilities or the auxiliary connection. Again, that's time for an awakening radio program with the live stream on the TuneIn app. Drop us an email at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Again, that's timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Time for an awakening also has a fan page on Facebook. In that Facebook search engine, you can type in time for an awakening radio program. There you'll always see interesting content being posted daily by myself or Brother Richard. And do me a favor, before you leave that page, just hit that like button. That's Time for an Awakening radio program with the fan page on Facebook and Time for an Awakening media is also there. Always full of the latest podcasts of the various programs on Time for an Awakening media. Interesting articles that you can read, download at later times and share with your friends. Also check out that Time for an Awakening marketplace and our partnership with the BB2Me. Always interesting things in the marketplace all the time various African language classes, classes on education, economics, social systems, health, and much, much more being taught by professors on both the continent and in the diaspora. So again, to make that one of your favorites, put that in your address bar. That's timeforanawakening.com. Timeforanawakening.com will take you straight to Time for an Awakening Media. It's 709 here on this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening, the Sunday, June 18th edition of Time for an Awakening. Our guest this evening in conversation that will be joining us around the 8 o'clock hour is activist, organizer, 
and New York City Council person of the 42nd District. Brother Charles Byrne will be with us this evening. Uh, the author of the book, Speaking Truth to Power, Articles and Essays of Revelation, uh, a Revolution, Black Radical Politics and Leadership, will be joining us this evening to discuss uh, some of the recent developments in New York City around reparations and plus other topics that are uh, pertinent to our struggle here and especially uh, looking at it from a, a political point of view. Uh, we'll be right back to get the program started after a brief word from our sponsors. Mr. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and, and our enemies. <laughs> Everybody is here. You are listening to Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts or live programming, hit them up at timeforanawakening.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency in business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Overworked? Suffering with an underperforming company, headache customer, staff, or vendors? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? We turned a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one transformation created for entrepreneurs like you in various industries around the country. Not what you're used to from accounting and business consulting? Well, welcome to New Business Solutions. If you're ready to go beyond advising, coaching, and training and get implemented results, call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions apply the best comprehensive administrative accounting, operations, human resources, management, sales, and marketing to help you actualize your vision for yourself and your company. 
from anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072. Spelled new as in numerous on your device right now. Book your free consultation at newbusinesssolutions.com. History is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography. History tells of people where they have been and what they have been, where they are and what they are. Most important, history tells a people where they still must go, what they still must be. The relationship of history to the people is the same as the relationship of a mother to her child. From antiquity to the present, our people need to develop a new paradigm. It's time for an awakening with your host, Brother Elliot. Sundays, 7 p.m., Fridays at 8 p.m. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit us up at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Welcome back time for an awakening and uh before we get started with our program this evening i want to welcome our co-host philadelphia activist and tour guide at the african american museum here at 7th and art street in philadelphia brother richard is with us brother richard yes sir brother ellie how are you sir i'm doing fine i'm doing fine you know uh you know uh brother ellie i had the opportunity to um you know, been going to certain Juneteenth um, festivals, and and we just had one that was um, even, I guess, because of the partnership was televised here in Philadelphia, and it's making me raise the question. And I know we're um, going to be speaking with um, um, Representative Brother um, Charles Barron, Barron around the the whole thing of reparations, the task force that is being formulated in New York. But this, um, and as I'm going around and I'm seeing, you know, how, you know, from a national, uh, what is it, a national holiday, Juneteenth turned out to become, and state holidays, and it's making me ask the question, well, what's the purpose of these festivals? Um, but I'll come back to that later because it seems that it does directly tie to the question in since even with Philadelphia um, next week, um, the council people deciding whether, um, you know, have to vote on a task force, you know, to explore um, reparations um, um, due to um, Africans in Philadelphia um, or reparatory justice. What does these festivals mean? What does the Juneteenth festival um, in these different areas around the country, what are they supposed to do? So um, that that's and and like I said, I'll be uh, continuing to go. I think to, not. To, I think tomorrow the African American Museum will have its um, Juneteenth festival, and and also another group that I'm involved will be um, presenting a you know commemoration. But um, what are, what are these things to do? So that's. That's the thought I have today as we enter, you know, wait for our guests and enter in the discussion. Well, you know, Richard, you said that you'll kind of frame this later. And plus, we, we kind of talk about it uh, on a, uh, you know, and somehow it's an always infusing the conversation. But I think one of the things it's framed around is, um, you know, our people becoming 
full-fledged citizens of this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, uh, it, it, uh, Juneteenth was supposed to uh, give a monicum of freedom, and the people are celebrating that as far as being becoming citizens of the country. I mean, would you agree with that, Richard? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, yes. And the, and the, and the festival is supposed to be the outgrowth of recognizing that. I mean, all um, when it's Emancipation Day, um, all of these were, you know, as you say, a recognition of what we are doing. I'm wondering, you know, the reason why I'm raising the question because what I see these festivals happening today is something different. It seems that it's about food and fun. Um, not necessarily about um, commemorating, um, reviewing um, past of in relationship to our freedom and, and celebrating our success over the year um, and years in relationship to the movement towards that freedom. Um, so that's why I'm, I'm wondering, but I agree with you um, in that sense. Well, and... and- and a lot of those behaviors, Richard, uh, you know, they they relate back or revert back to our enslavement and the way some of our ancestors conducted themselves when they got breaks, you know, when these Europeans had holidays or whatever they were celebrating. And uh, and some of our ancestors had a, a monicum of, uh, of uh, a break from uh, being in the fields. Then that's one of the things that, that some of them did. And you see it in some of the... Um, the narratives that some of our people wrote, even Frederick Douglass wrote about it, right? About how they right. would be carrying on on some of the plantations. You know, he, you could see that he wasn't about that. It was always freedom on his mind, and they're trying to run away. And a lot of our ancestors, freedom was always on their mind. But you had some that was, you know, ready to kick up their heels and and do all types of stuff that had nothing to do with the struggle for freedom. And I and I agree. You know, I'm 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 looking at uh, um, this book, um, Festivals of Freedom, um, Memory and Meaning in the um, African American Emancipation Celebrations, 1808 to 1915, um, by um, Mitch Kitchen. And I just it was just it caught my attention as you um, laid that out uh, about what some was doing, but his um, what he brings out as far as the the purpose of him um, exploring this was that African-American Public Freedom Day com- commemorations were to consistently use, were consistently used for the purposes of defining, revising, and retelling the collective history of African-American people, um, both the con- content and the, and the context were subject to change, but the celebration organizers persisted in passing on the story of the people from one generation to the next. I'll stop there. Well, and, and, and Richard, listen, you can't have uh, leadership. And I'm talking about now, presently. Right. You can't have leadership that is not aware of our struggle here and, who's we, and who we've been struggling against. You, you just can't. You, you, right. You're like a blind man. Or, or you're like a, somebody in the room and then they cut the light off and you and you searching around for the switch on the wall with your hands out and you can't see in the dark. I mean, half of these, or a large percentage, a very large percentage of these quote-unquote black leaders have no clue 
about our history here. And I'm not talking about uh, knowing Martin Luther King and, you know, just some of the popular figures. I'm talking about the, our historical struggle and what has happened constantly to our people since we've been here. Mm. The attack on the so-called citizenship that our people feel as though that they have. In fact, you know, while we're waiting on our guest, he's going to join us around 8 o'clock hour. I want to share some of the information that, uh, you know, John Boyd has been on the program a a few times, the the president of the Black Farmers and Agriculturalists Association, along with Tom Burrell. And the last time he was on, uh, he talked about um, that in in the American Rescue Plan uh, and the money that was allocated to black farmers. Since then, a lot of stuff has changed. Um, and we will eventually get him back on it, it, You know, he's been, uh, and you can imagine he's been running around doing a lot of different stuff, but he'll eventually be back on, but he does send me stuff whenever he's doing something. He, he makes sure that we get it so we can share it with the listeners. Uh, I, I just want to read because he went on a couple of, uh, broadcasts, CNN and uh, a couple of other of, 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 of TV media to kind of put his case out there, um, you know, for the public opinion. And not put his case, put the 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 uh, plea of black farmers out there and what has been happening. But before I share with you uh, his strategy, let me read to you, um, the listening audience, the assessments of the lawsuit that was filed against the United States for what they did in reference to this last thing that was signed into law. You know, that American Rescue Plan was signed into law, I think, in March, where all the different things was allocated to whatever they were doing, Um, money for Ukraine, whatever, different stuff that was allocated, money for Israel, money for uh, the budget here in the United States, domestic and foreign, and the different entities. Well, the money allocated for African-American farmers because of discrimination was also in there. $5 billion for debt relief and uh, uh, loan forgiveness. Um, and it was signed into law in March, if I'm not mistaken, of 2021. By May, uh, in fact, it was in the process when that was signed into law. But by May or, or April, it started coming out that uh, the banks had challenged it. Uh, white farmers had challenged money that black farmers were getting. Uh, because of past discrimination, it wasn't a gift, Richard. Right. And before I re- uh, read this, let me read these two published reports. One came out of Bloomberg in May second of 2022 it says african-american farmers lost uh about 326 billion not million 326 billion dollars worth of land in the u.s due to discrimination during the 20th century they had an assessment of things that went on during the 20th century in reference to black farmers uh due to discrimination during the 20th century a study found from 1922 to 1998 that black farmers lost $326 billion worth of land uh, 
the acreage of it is talked about in several different reports, uh, upwards of 14.7 million to 22 something uh, point something million acres of land. Uh, black farmers or black operated farms account for 4.7 million acres of farmland, only 2% of the agricultural land in the U.S. total. The average size of the uh, black operated farm is 132 acres. Uh, now, I noticed something eerily similar with this uh, account, Richard, when it says that black farmers account for 2% of agricultural land in the United States. You, you mm. notice something ringing similar here, Richard? To the amount of businesses? Yes. Uh, yes. It mm. seems that uh, you, uh, we're always falling around at 2, 3, 4, 5, 6% of businesses, whether it be farm or other businesses. And, and, mm. the, and just like I stated before, the farm business is totally different than any other business necessarily in this country. Because you can have a clothing store or a convenience store or whatever, and if you fail, you fail. But agriculture to a country is a life's blood. That's why it's in the, the federal budget every year. They got a farm budget because if a drought happens, if a, a pestilence happens, things like that happen, flood and wipe out uh, crops, that can affect the not only the domestic but the foreign uh, 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 uh money that's generated by this country. So it's it's always money in the federal budget to buttress or uphold farmers. Now let me read this here that came out. And this is why John Boyd has been going on uh, some of these shows now talking about this. The header of this article uh, says U.S. calls for black farmers lawsuit to be dismissed. The federal government now, keep in mind, <clears throat> we already stated that white farmers and the banks around the country had balked about money for farmers or for for past discrimination, not a gift or not the, the you know money that the, the money that they were due now here it is here it says the federal government is rejecting black farmers' claim that the U.S. breached a contract with them by ending the $5 billion loan forgiveness program. A financial assistance program, hold on one second, I'm sorry. A financial assistance program is not the same as a contract, and legislation is not presumed to be a contract with individual citizens. The Justice Department attorneys said in the March 10th filing, with the U.S. Court of Federal Claims. Four black farmers sued the federal government in October, saying they maintained or expanded their farms after accepting USDA's offer of debt relief, only to see the program canceled before payments could be sent out. The program authorized in the 2021 American Rescue Plan Act offered forgiveness of of black farm loans to members of socially disadvantaged, the socially disadvantaged group off limits to white farmers. The program was quickly frozen in constitutional challenges. Uh, Last year's uh, reduction act, inflation reduction act 
Congress replaced the program. The ensuing lawsuits, uh, the plaintiffs accused the government of a breach of contract that left them unable to service their debt and at risk of losing their farms. The farmers' financial woes are irrelevant because they are not a requirement of the program, said the Justice Department. In fact, participants are not required to provide anything of value in return for the government's payment. That shows the program is not a contract, the Justice Department says, because contracts involve a mutual exchange. Furthermore, the American Rescue Plan expressly gave contracting authority uh, to at least seven times, excuse, excuse me. Furthermore, the American Rescue Plan Act expressly, expressly gave contracting authority at least seven times for other programs, but the law did not use the kind of language for loan forgiveness. Inviting people to uh, fill out a government form does not constitute an offer of a contract, says the Justice Department. The filing also rejected claims by uh, black farmer John Boyd's founder of the National Black Farmers Association. The Boyd says that uh, they told President Biden and Senator Cory Booker that if the government provided relief for black farmers uh, that, that the USDA had mistreated, that the Boyds would not sue the agency for discrimination claims. The Justice Department said that the claim is too vague to constitute a contract, <laughs> and it involves unspecified discrimination and unspecified compensation. I mean, let me read that again. The Justice Department said the claim is too vague to constitute a contract. It involves unspecified discrimination and unspecified compensation. In addition, the board made no claim that all Congress knew about the purported offer. The, the law does not mention uh the Boyds or their offer. The law does not extinguish their right to sue, the agency says. The court has determined whether the farmers can, have determined whether the farmers can proceed. Uh, the farmers' attorney, Ben Crump, who has been representing the family uh, and black farmers, also represented George Floyd and other high profile city civil rights lit- litigants. Richard. I mean, I can't question the listening audience, but Richard, do you hear some of the things that the federal government is saying in reference to what they said and promised black farmers? You know, the the thing that I picked up is this thing about contract and being vague. Exactly. Exactly. Unspecified discrimination, uh, 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 unspecified damages, I just read to you a Bloomberg report saying that uh, they did a study, and during the 20th century, $326 billion worth of land was taken from black farmers due to discrimination. So what are you talking about unspecified? See, this is what this this really goes to questioning whether black people are really citizens or whether they're just a colonized people. Mm-hmm. Or, and I, I have to add another term. We just a population. 
you see, a people in, implies that there is some unified sense of, of, of cultural values that we operate and manage. A population is just a group of individuals. Um, slaves were um, considered, enslaved people were considered just population. You bought them, you trade them, they had value. That wasn't a, that wasn't a people. They lo- no longer had an identity, a cultural historical identity. They just were a commodity. And that's what it sounds like every time we got to be, I mean, you know, what came to my mind is um, um, Byron Allen. You got, you got to be able to prove the evidence is there, but you still got to be able to To prove prove that you were were harmed. (laughs) Well, you know, since then he's, uh, John Boyd went on a couple of programs uh, last week or, or and he sent me, in fact, he sent it to me last week. So I think it was with, put it this way, it was in this month of June where he went on a couple of, um, uh, programs talking about what's going on with black farmers. But he said it in relation to some other reports that have been released here or just recently. Let me play some of the audio of some of the things he says about the farmers while we're waiting on our guests to join us. I can pull this up here. Let me see. I got a couple of clips here. Let's go to this one here. Uh, you know, last year alone, we lost over 10,000 farms, U.S. farms here in the United States. And it looks as though the administration has money for uh, Chinese farmers. They have money for Russia. They have money for Ukraine farmers, but they don't have any resources for America's farmers right here at home. Uh, you have to take care of American farmers. This is the oldest occupation known to man here in the United States, which is farming. And this administration, uh, right now at this point in history, giving money to Chinese farmers in Russia, what does that say to struggling farmers facing foreclosure right now? We have members in our organization that are facing foreclosure that we don't have the answers for. We don't have the resources to save these farms. And then we're looking at these types of resources going out to uh, Chinese farmers and, 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 and Russia. And you know what? Uh, China can come here and bid on our farm at auction and buy our farms, but we can't go to China and, 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 and uh, buy their farms. Something is certainly wrong with this picture. They can come to, to the United States and buy companies like Syngenta and buy companies like Smithfield, but we can't go to their country and buy their companies. Uh, We have to take a stand, and the administration is taking the wrong approach uh, with this whole thing. Well, you know, I reached out to the administration and Democratic leadership, uh, Chuck Schumer and others, to issue a complete farm moratorium that would uh, stop uh, direct loans at USDA from, from being foreclosed on, guaranteed loans, and other agricultural lenders to stop selling our farms at this point where we're facing the highest input costs. Uh, I'm buying soybean seeds for $70 a bag, but I haven't had a raise in a commodity price on on the markets in probably 20 years. These are real issues of facing America's farms. So while we're watching our farmers uh, uh, lose their livelihoods, and when you lose your farm, you lose your history, you lose your name, you lose the, the cemeteries that your loved ones are are buried here on these farms. And to watch these kind of monies 
go out to other foreign entities instead of that resources coming to America's uh, uh, promise. You know, we never got the $4 billion we were promised by uh, the, uh, this administration. It was repealed in Congress. And here we are, you know, watching these monies, I'm going to keep saying it, going to China and Russia instead of going to America's farmers and taxpayers right here at home. Yeah, this is after 2022 when you and your your, your fellow farmers had to deal with the fertilizer issues uh, that were coming out of the yeah. war with Ukraine and Russia. That's another side that's, that's you know. Now, Richard, let me play this, this other clip also uh, because he was on another program. I think this is CNN talking about the same issue. And we do it, and we do it for uh, cheap prices. America's farmers really hasn't had a raise here in, in decades based on the, the markets, but we continue to, to go out there and produce good food for cheap. Uh, we pay the high cost of machinery, uh, our interest rates and all of these things, uh, diesel fuel, all of the input costs that we pay up front. Uh, farmers do it every year, and we do it good. And then to have this administration slap us in the face by providing China and Russia with $1.6 billion while we're suffering right here at home. And uh, last week alone, we were in Oklahoma trying to save a family farmer there. So farmers are losing their farms here. And when we lose our farms, we lose our history. We, there's family cemeteries on these farms and hmm. things of this nature. And we're losing our farms to operatives like China. That's what's happening right now. John, I want to ask you about the 2024 uh, president. I think that was the same clip. I did have another one, but I might have mislabeled it. Uh Richard, he mentioned something in that particular clip about uh, money sent to uh, Russia and China in reference to farm. Let me uh, share with the listening audience uh, something that he said in relation to that. And keep in mind what I mentioned in the beginning about uh, presently black folks uh, own 2% of the agricultural land in the United States. Uh, this is a published report from the USDA. It's on their website. It says the USDA reported that foreign individuals and entities held an interest in 37.6 million acres of U.S. agricultural land by the end of 2020. Canadian investors own the largest share of foreign-held land in the U.S., 12,000,000.4 acres, making up to 32% of all foreign investments, followed by the Netherlands at 13%, Italy at 7%, the U.K. at 6%, Chinese investors uh, hold uh, 1% of America farmland, uh, while investors from Canada, uh, Germany, the UK are regular among the top foreign investors. Countries such as China and Saudi Arabia are increasing their investments in U.S. agricultural land. Now, John Boyd said that the, the U.S. is helping them acquire some of this land. He mentioned about them bidding on the farmland, black farmers' farmland, once it goes up for bid. You, you caught that, didn't you, Richard? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, 
and I just read off the stats of how many of these other countries own farmland here in the United States. Uh, I mean, none of these people here, Canadians, uh, Netherlands, Italy, the UK, uh, Germany, none of these people are citizens of the United States. Mm-hmm. Or they are fellow white brethren. Right. That, but, yeah. but they're not citizens of the United States. Now, it says here that uh, China owns 1% of America's farmland with Saudi right. Arabia coming right up behind them. And keep in right. mind, I just stated to you from the USDA website that black farmers own 2% of right. agricultural farmland. Right. So if they own 2%, Canada owns 32%, the Netherlands 13%, Italy 7%, the UAK 6%, China 1%, all of these beside China, and they're moving up like a bullet as, as far as ownership. Because according mm-hmm. to John Boyd, they're bidding on the black farmers' land once it, it goes up. Uh, what's going on here? You're, you're a citizen. Mm-hmm. But you know, I mean, you know, I'm glad you you bring out you bring out this how structural this is. This, well, let, well, wait a minute. Let me let, let me add a little more to that, Richard. No, I just want to add a little more before you comment on it. Uh. This is also from the USDA website. As Congress debates, it says foreign ownership of U.S. agricultural land. As Congress debates its economic and national security policy towards China, there has been an increased scrutiny of Chinese ownership of U.S. agricultural land. While several recent studies point to an increase of China's agricultural of of Chinese-owned agricultural land, much of the conversations are not reflect the context of the total private agricultural land ownership or Chinese ownership relative to individuals from other countries. Since 2021, these conversations have included increased scrutiny of Chinese ownership of U.S. agricultural land. Currently, the federal government does not restrict foreign ownership of U.S. agricultural land, but the U.S. Department of Agriculture does collect reports uh, of such acquisitions. And again, it talks about all of these countries here and it lists the top 10 of of foreign owners of land. And I just stated uh, that in the previous article, but I'll read it again. Canada, number two is the Netherlands, number three is Germany, number four is Italy, number five is the UK, number six is Portugal, Number seven is France, uh, Sweden, and then China. All of these entities, besides China, which was which was at one percent in twenty twenty one, they're probably more than that. I know they're more than that now. But all mm-hmm. of these other entities own more farmland in the United States than quote unquote black citizens that had been discriminated against and had their land taken. But you, you know the thing that you said though in relationship to China, um, you know I, the challenge when you hear all these European countries is that they're going to buy they're buying African American. Correct me if I'm wrong, the land that African Americans have. So it ain't like they're getting you know like it's squeezing out, but it's only what 
you know, what they're willing, they being the U.S. Agriculture Department, is willing to sell to another people of color. They're, but they're, but the European countries are, are owning all of this. Yeah, as you say, what, Canada over 30%? It said 32%. You would think that that would be the percentage of what, as you say, if you're citizens especially African-Americans as citizens. But here you got the banks and large white farmers arguing that they shouldn't. Now the Justice Department saying they shouldn't even get relief to maintain their farms. Uh, maybe, I'm mis- maybe I'm misunderstanding what you're presenting to us. No, you're not misunderstanding it. <laughs> you stated clearly what's going on. See, that, that this is... The- and these are some of the things that, that your leadership don't tell you. And they're involved in these votes. They sit in Congress. They vote on who get, who is getting this money. It's not like they don't know what's going on. And, and, and this is why, like, this kind of reporting, if we talk about what Juneteenth, and I, I'm just making sure to tie, this is the update that people should be recognizing because it speaks to, as you say, our citizenship and the question of this more abstract, well, what is freedom if you don't own no land? And that was the primary thing. When we talk about coming out of Reconstruction, wasn't land the primary request, land and education? That black folks had determined what, what it was to be a citizen and what it was to be free. Now, here's this last one I'll add, Richard, uh, because in that, that other clip that I had, he spoke about, he added the Ukraine into his conversation. Uh, somehow I done misplaced that clip. I'll find it. Uh, when Boyd was talking about the money that have went in reference to helping other farmers, he mentioned Ukrainian farmers. But let me read this here. This came from the Council of Foreign Relations, their website. It says, every year, the United States sends billions of dollars in aid and much more uh, and much more than any other country to beneficiaries around the world in pursuit of security, economic, and humanitarian interests. Heading into 2022, U.S. foreign assistance have driven by various priorities of the Biden administration including combating climate change, responding to COVID-19 pandemic, and countering authoritarianism. But since the Russian invasion in February of that year, Ukraine has become far and away the top recipient of U.S. aid. It's the first time that a European country has held the top spot since the Harry Truman administration directed vast sums into rebuilding the continent through the Marshall Plan after World War II. Since the war began, the Biden administration and U.S. Congress have to, and notice I added the U.S. Congress, Richard, mm-hmm. have directed more than $75 billion in assistance to the Ukraine, which includes humanitarian, financial, and military, according to the Kiel Institute of, for the World Economy, a German research institute. The historic sums are heading or helping a broad set of Ukrainian people and institutions, including refugees and law enforcement and independent radio broadcasters. Uh, Through most of the aid, 
though most of the aid has been military-related. Uh, dozens of other countries in NATO uh, of the European Union are also providing large aid packages. But let me uh, just, because it mentioned here that a lot of the money, even though it's, it's uh, military-related, that large sums of money has, has gone towards uh, law enforcement, independent radio broadcast, and refugees. Now, let me share with you some of the things that mentioned here because it, uh, the initial thing says set over $75 billion at the printing of this article heading into 2022 had been sent. I think more was sent last at the beginning of June. Mm-hmm. Uh, it says here a total... As of January, excuse me, as of February 24th, 2023, a total of 76.8 billion had been sent to the Ukraine. 3.9 billion was humanitarian, which was food, health care, refugee support, and other humanitarian needs. 3.9 billion. 26.4 billion of that money was financial, which was economic support uh, for Ukrainians, for loans, other funds, and financial support. And then the other things here was weaponry and equipment, grants and loans for weapons, uh, those billion. But I'm fe- I'm focusing in on the $26.4 billion and the $3.9 billion, which is basically $30 billion for uh Ukrainians uh, to get loans, other funds, financial support, health care, and food assistance. $30 billion. And the rug was pulled out from under black farmers for $5 billion for discrimination, not for a handout like they give it to the Ukraine because black folks didn't do anything to Ukrainians. But this was for discrimination. Mm. And your representatives vote on this all the time to send this money overseas to various entities and know that their own people are getting the shaft. You don't hear nothing about it until other people like Boyd and others put these people on the carpet. You don't hear nothing about it. All you hear is some blacks and especially certain black media waving pom-poms for these people. Hakeem Jeffries, Cory Booker. Uh, the guy in South Carolina, uh, Clyburn, all these people. It's, it's a cheering session. It's flag waving. It's the first black this, the first black that. When our people are still suffering under these people, they're voting on sending all of this money to other people, and your people are getting the shaft. I just want to share those uh, those few <laughs> articles, Richard. While uh, you know, while before we go to our break and and uh, and uh, uh, be joined by our guests, but um, you know, I, I think those things were important. He he wanted me to share these things, and he had been on the program talking about these things anyway. So when you know when he shares that inf- information, I'll give updates on what's going on. It's 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 important um, because it, you know, Elliot. Um, I mean, again, yeah, again we we have. As a people, and and I think, you know, um, one of the things that you mentioned, even though it didn't get as much as far as even, I think that you said, um, communication systems or radio stations, 
um, as far as what money was directed to uh, in the Ukraine. In Ukraine. And yeah. what I'm saying is that it's yeah. important to get that. Is that correct? The radio stations were also included in that? Yeah. Uh, it says here uh, law enforcement and radio broadcasters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's because that's how you inform a people. Exactly. Right? That's the infrastructure, right? To inform the people. So what we're what we're seeing is the financing to uh how how and what is important. And you see the largest the largest amount is the largest amount is financial to provide their banking system. I guess that's what they mean by financial, right? Yeah, With the funds, right? Yeah, it says uh, support funds and loans and other financial support for the Ukrainian people. Yeah, so uh, yeah, and it was twenty six billion that was allocated up until that point. It's been more right. than that since then. And, and three billion, uh, uh, the, the second largest amount for y- humanitarian, uh, which would be people who are suffering. But when, if we look at black people in America. And we've said, and you brought out, you know, you brought out this data to this point when the business is only at three percent in every, and you see, I mean, it's three percent, and you, I think that when you raise that number, the amount of business that should be proportional to the size, and then you hear, um, you also raised how Wells Fargo was preventing when you talk about humanitarian, we're preventing people from being able to even purchase houses at a, uh, a deep discount rate. What, what I'm trying to get at is that here, when you raise this question about citizenship, raise this question about us being a people, or we raise the question about, are we a colonized people? You see that other places get more to build. You had the Marshall Plan mentioned. You got this here funding for Ukraine. But when it gets to black America where you have, and most of the major areas, poverty is more than a quarter of the, a quarter of their population. Educational outcome. The far, farming. The, not, and, 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 you know, as you say, Elliot, farms has two aspects. You, even if you don't grow something, the point that you're making, the farm, the value of the land can increase. Mm-hmm. The commodity production is an added economic in, um, advantage. But what it said is that farm owned black people owning land is has no strategic national security value. Other than that, it would be supported, right, as a part of, you know, because they trust Canada more and Netherlands and Germany. They obviously, in relationship to national security, and look what they got, but they concern with China with 1%, and they're all, you know, their head is all in the spin out of national security. And here we are, citizen, you can't. We are not supposed to own land, and we look at the amount of land that we had and the amount of land that farmers own now, that's not a national security risk. That's a, I mean, I don't know if, you know, like, are we talking out our head? I mean, you present the data, but are we talking out our head? 
But the thing that gets me is, are 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 our people listening to the position that we're in? And well, is that a healthy position to be in? Well, listen, Richard, and 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 I'm not faulting our people to a degree, because mm-hmm. sometimes it's difficult when you're bombarded. See, media is about. Malcolm said this years ago that medium is a uh, media is a powerful tool. If you're bombarded with media saying a situation is one way, and you got individuals saying it's another way, it's hard for people to really believe what you're saying as an independent person, just looking at things that they can look at for themselves, because their their leadership is telling them something different. When you have our people facing, you know, I read on Friday all those stats and how the business model for uh, payday loans and the the business model for these dollar stores is basically targeting you. They admit it, that you are the target. But when you have your leadership, whether it's, Tim Scott on one side of the aisle or Kamala Harris on the other side telling you that you don't live in a racist country. Mm. They said it out of their own mouth. So who, who am I supposed to believe you or my lying eyes? They're telling you that you don't live in a racist country, but our people are feeling this every day and all they're bombarded with all types of, I mean, I don't see how people can keep their sanity. And we heard, didn't we hear that young people are, uh, I mean, if we take, unfortunately to say this, but if we take the how increasing of suicide rate amongst young people, we're losing our sanity. Wow. Well, Richard, I mean, you know, these these going to be topics of conversation that's going to constantly come up. Uh, uh, Tom Burrell will be back on. John Boyd will be back on eventually. And all of these people. And, you know, in the backdrop of all that, Richard, when the USDA, excuse me, not the USDA, the Justice Department says that, you know, that lawsuit was thrown out because of unspecified damages. You remember they said that, Richard? Yeah. And unspecified, um, I hate to misquote that because I had it right in front of me. But you remember when it said those things was not, not clear. Oh, wait a minute, here right. it is. The Justice Department says that the claim against the United States is too vague to constitute a contract. It involves unspecified discrimination and unspecified compensation. Now, that's just dealing with that. If you remember what when uh, Tom Burrell was on initially and talked about that Stein seed, which is a billion dollar, the second largest producer of seed in the United States or third. Multi-billion dollar company that was selling fake seed to African-American farmers that wouldn't germinate. I mean, do you? What type of proof? I mean, it's all types of proof out here. What, what's been going on? They sold fake seed to black farmers. And if I, if listen, if I buy all this seed and plant it in hundreds of acres of land, 
and it don't come through, then most farmers can go to USDA and get some kind of forgiveness for that, debt right. forgiveness, get more money for more seed, because that's part of the federal budget. It's different than other businesses. But if I've been sold this fake seed and then go to the uh, the, the, the county, I forgot the, the name that they use, Richard. John Boyd and them said that they used to go to this county uh, representative or whatever to get money. You go to these people to get money and they tell you to go kick rocks. Then what are you going? You're going to eventually lose your land. Because you can't get the money. This this stuff is crazy, man. Our, our people really got the real. They got to start holding these people's feet to the fire. And I'm talking about your representatives. Europeans going to do what they do. If you use a historical perspective on them, you see that they haven't changed their approach to how they're dealing with us. Mm-hmm. The thing that has changed is black folks that have gotten to these positions of power. They're starting to deal with us almost like they they don't see this, them as part of you. Unless it's financially, uh, uh, unless it's politically expedient. Richard, drum is being beaten, Elliot. The drum is being beaten. We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, hopefully uh, uh, Charles Barron will be ready because they had some meetings from 7 to 8, and he said he would join us after that, so it ain't no problem. Uh, If he's not here, then we'll continue on. You can join the conversation, too, about dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. Richard, before we go... um, the, the, the break. Um, of course, I saw on the, the television about uh, uh, some observances that they had. What, was that at the museum today, or when is that supposed to be tomorrow? Or they tomorrow. had it today and tomorrow? Tom- uh, tomorrow. Today was um, the in a section of the city, West Philadelphia, where they had yeah, a I seen parade. parade. Yeah, I saw it. I saw they was having a parade on 52nd, and it, I think it was going to culminate at Malcolm X Park. Malcolm X Park, yes. That's, um, that's, and, and yesterday was um, in another section, um, the uh, Juneteenth, it was um, in Germantown section, the section, the area where um, the um, Germans who were the first supposed to protest, and I say supposed to, uh, protests against slavery in America um, in relationship to the Quakers, um, you know, that they're there. Oh, that was that, uh, the Johnson, uh, near the Johnson House, I think? The Johnson House, yes. Okay. You know, um, yeah. And then the Historical Society is supposed to do something Wednesday. Um, they're uh, showing a film around Juneteenth. Um, and you know, they're extending Juneteenth to go into the 4th of July. Okay. Okay. Black (laughs) black folks extending Juneteenth to go into the 4th of July. You know, I mean, don't get me started, Elliot, because it it gets into the money, right? Uh, the companies are financing these, um, these act, the larger companies are financing these activities, and then their um, thing is to make like to show well 
this is all about freedom and they're, you know, want to have these activities go lead up into the, well, I don't know if this is around the country, but I know in Philadelphia to lead up to the 4th of July. So it can deal with, you know, I mean, the 4th of July was supposed to be about freedom and independence. Right. Uh, so, and Juneteenth was supposed to be about becoming aware of freedom and independence. And, you know, they're still pushing that narrative, Elliot, um, that, you know, the, the people in Texas didn't know that the emancipation or the 13th amendment was, uh, written compared to the people in Texas were under, um, strict, um, military occupation by Confederate plantation owners until those regiments, which were large part of African-American regiment, which even one, uh, Philadelphia regiment went into, Texas with Grain is the Granger and 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 read that um you know the um proclamation was that number three? Yeah. So I mean this this myth that we were uninformed of what was going on compared to which ties to me and what you the point that you was making and by laying out all this that you can be and you can be in a state legally of free, but be under the control of someone else and can't exercise that freedom. You call it citizenship, right? And then when you get the, somebody come and say, well, you we, we now going to enforce that freedom, they say, well, really, all we're going to do is change the names of the... I just, I, I just love that, Elliot. I apologize to the listening audience. I mean, this kind of thinking, right? Well, you're free, but now you're just free. You're not under the same condition. You're not a slave anymore. You're not an enslaved person. So you go back to the owner of the property that you were working for for free, but now you're just considered a laborer. No land transfer, no wealth transfer. And we're going to make sure that you do that. Uh, does that sound like free? No, but that's the language. That, that That's what was stated, Richard. You're not saying anything that wasn't stated. That's an historical document and can be pulled up by any of us and see what was stated to our ancestors on June, 9th, uh, uh, June 19th, uh, 18, six, I think it was 65. Right. That you're no longer master and slave relationship, but you're an employer employee relationship. And plus, it gave you two two warnings at the end. It gave you <laughs> two warnings after you're a yeah. free man. It gave you two warnings at the end. Don't come to a military base looking for help, and don't be idle. Right. Don't so, wander around here, which has always been the relationship yeah I, I mean it's just i mean and, and 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 this kind of narrative compared to we were i mean we were just uninformed until they came and saved us wow we're gonna take a brief break and when we come back uh hopefully our guests will be with us you can join the conversation by down 215 Four nine zero nine eight three two. That's two one five four nine zero ninety eight thirty two. Time for an awakening. We'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> 
You are listening to Time for an Awakening. Time for an Awakening. With host, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media. Part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowner's insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. I transformed a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one of the tangible transformations I've created for entrepreneurs in various industries around the country. If this isn't what you think of when you think of accounting and business consulting, then get ready to take down this invaluable information. Are you an entrepreneur suffering with a stagnating company? Have headache customers, staff, or vendors? Are you rebounding from a loss and need help achieving your unrealized potential? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? Hi, my name is Nataki Kanban. If you're ready to go beyond advising and coaching and get results, then call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions recommend and implement the best comprehensive sales, administrative, human resources, accounting, and operations to help you grow into your vision for yourself and your company. Again, from anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072 or pull us up on your device right now and book your free consultation at www.newbusinesssolutions.com. Just mention you heard this special announcement on Time for an Awakening. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. For 12 years, I and others like me had held out radiant promises of progress. I had preached to them about my dream. I had lectured to them about the not-too-distant day when they would have freedom all here now. I had urged them to have faith in America and in white society. Their hopes had soared. They were now booing me because they felt that we were unable to deliver on our promises. They were booing because we had urged them to have faith in people who had too often proved to be unfaithful. They were now hostile because they were watching the dream that they had so readily accepted turn into a frustrating nightmare. And so the collision course is set.
the desegregation decisions and other type of legislation and Supreme Court decisions depends upon changing the white man's mind. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches uh, us that our own mind has to be changed. We have to change our uh, mind about ourselves. In what way? Well, so he uh, teaches us the importance of moral reformation, uh, a knowledge of self. And, uh, for instance, if the average so-called Negro, he doesn't think that he can uh, go into business and provide jobs for himself. And because of this, he thinks that he can only get a job from the white man, or he can only get clothes from the white man, or he can only get food from the white man. And we who follow the Honorable Elijah Muhammad are taught that uh, the same thing that the white man has done for himself and his kind, uh, if our people could uh, be uh, wrecked, if, they could, if we could be cured of our slave mentality that was uh, indoctrinated into us during slavery, we would realize that just as the white man can do these things for himself and his kind, we can get together in unity and harmony and do the same thing for ourselves and our kind. not wondering at all about them. What I'm concerned with the suffering and the pain of the masses of black people. No one wants to pay reparations. The Jews received over a hundred billion dollars in reparations and gets four billion annually. A Holocaust museum was set up for them on this soil for over two hundred million dollars and they get two twenty-one million annually just for operating expenses. But the Catholic Church, the Pope, the Jews, the Arabs, white people in general, no one wants to pay reparations to these, the sons and daughters of Africa. So I speak to them. I don't speak. I speak to them. I don't speak to the family of those two Jews. There are too, too many of us for me to speak to them. And one of the reasons why I'm always happy to come to this organization, because you're the only one, you're the only black organization, again, that understands to put race first. Race first. Race first. And I've had some white folks to tell me that I was a flaming militant, a radical, or whatever all of these names were that they called me. And I said that I am very pleased that you've called me a nationalist, because you could have said that I was a member of the NAACP of the Urban League. So I said, I'm very pleased of the names that you have given. But I said that because we put race first, something is wrong with us. But everybody else puts their own first because God blessed the child who has his own. And so I think that race first is very important. And though we meet in a different venue, we're not at the slave theater, we're not at the church, we're now at the Masonic Temple, it really does not matter where we are physically. It matters where we are in our minds. And wherever we meet, as long as we know that we're Africans and as long as we know that we're black people living here in America, we know exactly who we are. You notice you can put an Uncle Tom in any venue in the White House. You can even put him in his. He'll still be a Tom. You can put him anywhere you want. Well, it's the same thing with us who are strong people. Wherever we are, we're going to be the people that we need to be. encourage let me just say this before our time winds up and that is I want 
the people in the audience to go back and look at the video clip from Roots. It's entitled something like Breaking Kunta Kente. That scene opens with Lauren Green uh, sitting in, who's the plantation master, sitting in his office and then Fiddler comes in and says, um, uh, we don't want to be too hard on the runaway. Kunta Kente has just run away and been caught. And um, so the time comes for him to get his lashing. And if you look at this scene, it's about nine minutes, and study the scene. Study the role of everybody or bodies that are in this particular clip. And you will find that there is an equivalent role in the political life of our country today, whether it's on the national level or on the local level. There's the black man, who actually does the whipping of Kunta Kinte. There's the white man who does the whipping. There's the black man who intervenes with the boss man and tries to save the life of Kunta Kinte. There's Kunta himself, who eventually is forced to admit that his name is Toby. And there's, a, there's dozens of bystanders, black, who are watching. This, this is a very powerful scene. And it's an analogy of exactly what is happening in our community today. Let's give those characters names in our community and call them what they are and then take care of business about that. Back to Time for an Awakening. It's 8.20 here on this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Uh, Richard. I didn't lose you. No, I, oh, okay. Can you? Yeah, I hear you. Good. Listen, Richard, before we go to our guest this evening in this portion of the program, activist, organizer, and New York City Council person from the 42nd District, Brother Charles Byron is with us. Uh, before we go there, let me play this for our listening audience. This was uh, Brother Barron recently on a uh, on March 18th. Let me play this if I can get it. Come of East New York, you are not building it in East New York. East New York. Is the, lo- the community had the largest increase 
and the black population is in East New York, 13.2%. Harlem lost 14% of its blacks, 400% increase of whites. Bed-Stuy, 600% increase of whites, lost 16% of its blacks. I have the distinct honor to be able to come before you and say I actually lost white population in my community. I lost them. They left. They left. I didn't ask them why. They left. So if you see one or two or three or four or five whites in my neighborhood, they're passing through. (laughs) But that's on a serious note. We got 13 thousand black elected officials in this country. We've had mayors, we've had governors, we have city council members. We need to get radical revolutionaries elected. We need to get people that are really committed to us because just having a black face in a high place doesn't mean anything. Even, Even if you are the president... Even if you are the president, they said, don't mess with the black president. When you don't mess with black leaders in high places, we are in a difficult situation. We got to deal with it because if we don't, now I'm going to say this and then I'm going to run out of here. One one of the good things about having Trump is all y'all are angry. (laughs) If you would have had somebody else, you would have thought you made progress. And you would have been cool. This fool is disrupting the whole world. Everybody's angry with him. So it provides more impetus for the movement. If Hillary would have been elected, y'all would have been saying, wow, we got a woman elected. You would have thought you had some progress and you would have went to sleep. Capitalism is predatory. And if you go for what they call the compassionate capitalism, that's an oxymoron, but compassionate capitalism is you get a $15 minimum wage and some food stamps. Compassionate capitalism is you get a few jobs and a few programs for your community, but it's still provides the impetus for the rich. It still exploits, but like Malcolm said, you suffer peacefully because you have the wrong people in power. I have more to say later, but stay ready for the revolution because that's the only solution. (laughs) Richard. Yes, yes. Our guest this evening, (laughs) joining us in conversation. New York City Councilman for the 42nd District, Brother Charles Barron, is with us. Brother Barron, how are you, sir? Well, thank you so much, and it's always an honor to be on with you. And I just love to hear the tapes that you play before your program starts. Those were some bad messengers. <laughs> Thanks for being with us, sir. Glad to have you back on Time for an Awakening with myself and Brother Richard. It's that, um, Brother Barron, I'm 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 honored, you know, especially around all the talk about what black politicians are not doing. And every time I bring up your name and and your district and what everybody goes solid. I mean, they, I have to say yeah. that they don't give no pushback. You well, know, I, I always say I would love for the both of you to come visit me. I, I will take you on a tour of the district. You will see it for yourself. And what angers me so much particularly in New York State, when in just about every 
power position. The attorney general is black. The head of the assembly is black. The head of the Senate is black. The mayor is black. The the chancellor of schools is black. District attorneys are black. Borough presidents are black. Some of the most powerful unions in New York are headed by blacks. Yet the poverty is skyrocketing. Unemployment is up. Homeless shelters are built in our communities, and the black mayor will not build them in the white and Asian communities. So it's a shame when you're in a state that has a 229 billion dollar state budget and a 106.7 billion dollar city budget. Man, that's a damn shame that we have the amount of poverty we have in black communities when we have all of those black faces in high places, because that does not mean black power until we get some black radicals, revolutionaries, those who prioritize the people of the party, our liberation over their individual personal ambition. <laughs> Brother Brian, before we kind of travel down that path or that door you just opened up, let's, let's go, let's backtrack a little bit. On Thursday, according to uh, the report in Amsterdam News, on Thursday, uh, the 8th of June, uh, the New York State Assembly passed legislation to create a New York State Community Commission on Reparations. Uh, You spoke to this issue. You wanted it to be, you didn't want any backroom deals, uh, according to the published report, and you wanted this to be fair and open for the community. Talk about what they did, and and that legislation that they were talking about was legislation that you authored when you were an assemblyman years ago, if I'm not mistaken. Well, that's correct. The legislation that I authored and sponsored was the prime sponsor of in 2021. It started in 2017, but I finally got it past the assembly. It was historic in two ways. One, in New York State, that's the first time we had any reparations commission uh, uh, sponsored bill passed. It didn't get past the Senate. The other historical piece to it, all of the other reparations commissioners, John Conyers, H.R. 40, you've got to start with who is going to appoint the commissioners. And John Conyers' bill, the president has some appointments, and the House and the Senate, Congress has appointments. Community groups don't have any appointments until Ron Daniels and them got it. Now they're trying to put some uh, community groups involved. In the Reparations Commission in California, which is making it appear as they way ahead and they're doing so great, but five of the appointments are from the governor and four come from the state assembly and none come from communities being able to um, appoint anybody. So when the end product is finished, you better believe it is going to favor with the hand-picked appointees from the state and the governor wants. In New York, I was able to say, no, we're going to do it differently. We're going to have an 11-panel commission. Two will be appointed by the December 12th movement, Viola Plummer and Omawali and Roger and them, who've been out on reparations for over 30 years. Two will be appointed by Encobra. They've been out for 30, 40 years. And two will be appointed by Ron Daniels and the Institute of the Black World, and they've been out for over 30 years. That would be six, one from the governor, two from the assembly, two from the Senate. We would have the majority, six, five. That's what passed when I was in the state assembly. When I went to the city council, 
and my wife was term limited out and on a local level the city council seat is far more powerful and have more resources we didn't want the machine to get that seat back so i went for that they got the state assembly seat back but not the city council seat and then they flipped it when i was gone they flipped it and they said we're going to pass another bill we'll pass a bill but it's going to be three for the governor three for the from the assembly and three from the Senate and none from the community. They got a, a sellout Negro uh, Senator, um, James Sanders, who was just jealous because I had the bill passed that he wanted and he wanted to give it to the state. So they passed that one. But we're going to take a victory lap and say we put reparations on the map and we made them pass something. Now we're going to mobilize and organize so that the right people get appointed. And then when they have those hearings, we're going to take them over to make sure at the hearings that the right plan, the right remedies are put forth and sent back to the state legislature. So the struggle continues, but we made history by making them pass it for the first time in New York State, no matter how much they tried to water it down, at least they talk in reparations, just as we made them sign on to a 63 Black, Latino, and Asian caucus signed a letter to free three political prisoners from the Black Liberation Army, Herman Bell, Jalil Montague, and Seth Hayes, who made his transition after he was released. After 40 years, we got the state legislature to sign a letter that we put together recommending that they be released on parole, and they were. Mm. Brother Byron, the... Um the commission that is formed or, or proposed to be formed um, with more community members being involved in elected officials or appointed officials by elect, uh, appointed people by elected officials. Is this the, the final number or does it have to be debated more? How, how is that working? No, that bill passed. They have the bill passed with three from the governor, a white woman governor who's clueless, a millionaire husband, banker, can think that she's moderate, she's more conservative. They'd rather give her, these black elected officials, a black speaker, Carl Hasty, and a black uh, head of the Senate, uh, majority leader, uh, Andrea Stewart-Cousins, these two blacks rather would have a white male, white female governor who's clueless, they'd rather give her three appointments than their brothers and sisters in these three groups that I have mentioned. It's a damn shame. But that's what passed. Now they have to select the people, so we have to take the struggle on another level, mobilize our people in New York and say, yeah, you may have gotten past that one, but now it's on. And you try to appoint people that are going to be puppets for you, we're going to have some battles. You know, uh, let me throw this out, and I'm going to pass it. I'm, I'm going to put this out there and, and just pass it over to Brother Richard because here in Philadelphia, we're going through something similar. Uh, in council uh, last week, it was uh, the the issue of reparations were raised and uh, uh, about a community uh, uh, task force being formed. Uh, Richard made a suggestion in private meeting that however it goes – that the community should still form a task force uh, in relation to this 
whether it's kind of like an oversight or just a community being organized. Richard, talk about it from your perspective in relation to what Brother Barron was talking about in New York. Yeah, just to have a parallel, and I'm and I'm I'm wanted to get your feedback, um, brother Barrett, in, in relationship to does that make sense? Um, recognizing that it's an organizing effort, but um, having that parallel system, in spite of, and and I'm, I appreciate you um, defining the politics that went on from what was initially raised and and what was wanted to what came out going through the political. But does it make sense to have that parallel system? in spite of, um, to where we go back, go through the process of actually, um, doing what a commission would do and utilize that as the oversight mechanism of the commission, the political commission, um, that may come into being. Does that make sense? Well, you know, I would put all my egg or most of my eggs into having influence on the legally set up commission. <laughs> legally set up a commission, and if you don't win that battle, like if they get over and set up the way they want to set it up, do that parallel piece. And that parallel piece could be the community piece that holds whatever they put in place accountable, like we're going to do here. So, yes, it makes good sense. But make sure you fight the battle. I don't know what the situation is in Philadelphia in terms of the racial makeup of your city council. <clears throat> I don't know what, are they saying that they want the governor and the city council or the, who, who are they saying should make the appointments on this? Uh, has, from what we, from what I understand right now, they're just trying to pass the bill that the task force would be established at the city. Yeah, um, but that's, but that once they say pass a bill, right? who appoints the task force? And that's and, and I, I have to say the um, the 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 last information because that was the question I asked um, is you know two young people um, brother um, Rashan and sister Brianna have been pushing for the task force they got the council person to um, actually submit for the that, that was happened Thursday um, but they in the, as I seen and what would the and I was sitting in the um, you know in the audience. And hearing the council person present, it didn't get into the language of what the, the composition of the task force is. Well, just- that's, key. that's important. It's important for you to know, does the city council members set up the task force? Does the mayor, like we have one in the city council now, and I'm going to have to do battle again on the city council level. Years ago, you know, it's my 14th year in the city council, my first three terms, 12 years, I put forth the Queen Mother Moore Reparations Commission for the city council. We didn't get anywhere with it. You know, I fought and fought and fought. But now, because of my fight on the state level, and now I'm in the city council, so somebody put forth a bill for the city council. And I'm talking with her now. She wants to set up a task force, a commission for the city. And she wants to give the mayor five appointments and then the Commissioner of Human Rights and the Commissioner of Economic Development, both whom the mayor appoints, the other two, you know, positions. So I told her just, what, three, four days ago, I said, well, you can't do that. Okay, we can work on making some changes, Charles, because, you know, I want to work with you because, you know, I know that you have the history and you do all the work. So how the commission 
and who sets up the commission is critical. Fight on that level. You can always do your parallel thing, Mm. but don't let them get away with, you know, y'all just doing a task force. You got to know who is selecting the people on the task force and try to say that we don't want you, the city council, or you, the mayor, to say, oh, don't worry, we'll select some of the groups you want. No, it's about power. Right. Because they will have the authority not to select anybody you want. And so you should say, no, we want two or three groups, four groups to select members of the task force to go along with the mayor and the city council. So let's say we have a task force of nine. You should try this, but if you don't succeed, keep rolling. Try to do five selected by the community and four selected by the, the city council, you know, two from the minority leader, two from the majority leader city council, and one from the mayor for for five. And let's say we'll do a, um, a nine member, then we'll have six or seven. Whatever you do, try to make the community groups have the majority of the selection. If that doesn't work and they say, no, we're going to do, you know, the mayor and the city council, and y'all could recommend groups, still fight it but then do your parallel commission. And I, and I know, um, I know in the conversation with um, the co-chair of Incobra, um, which, you know, we're pleased here that, you know, one that is, he's, he and her are the third generation of Incobra co-chairs um, um, since 94, when, when the initial um, um, organ, you know, organization of, for reparation and, and philosophy mm-hmm. established. Um, and they're like 27, they're, you know, they're young. But they mm-hmm. did they communicate to me that they're um, requesting to this council person, they want to be able to select all of, to as he says, the, to be able to, um, uh, what's that, what's that interview? All of the, so they want to have No, 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 don't say interview. Okay. You got to <laughs> focus on power. Right. Focus. They'll let you interview. And they'll let you recommend. Right. But who has the final decision in appointing the task force? Gotcha. Always focus on power. Win, lose, or draw, focus on power. If you get it, right on. If you don't, then you can go to these other messages. We'll set up our own thing. Oh, we want you to take this group and that group, and we're going to fight you until you put this group on. We want to make sure Encobra's on. Because, see, what they'll do is they'll select two or three of your groups. And um, then as long as they have the majority, it doesn't matter who, who they select from your pool. So always do a power analysis right. and fight for power and authority. Win, lose, or draw. And then if you don't get that, you can go to other measures. Got you. And thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Councilman Byron, uh, the situation in uh, New York is uh, um, uh, basically a microcosm of what's going on nationally, and especially uh, New York with black elected officials, because you just stated when you came on about the number of black elected officials in many, quote-unquote, power positions. Uh, Philadelphia was similar to that until this last election when they had a— a white mayor that went in. But if you look at a lot of the other offices, including the majority of council, uh, and I'm 
quite sure it's still that same way up until this last election, if I'm right, Richard. Right. That the majority of council is still black. But you see that in Philadelphia, poverty rate is still 28% uh, on average higher in the communities. Uh, crime is off the hook. The, the education system in our communities are, are piss poor. It shows to me and to anybody that's really looking at the situation a failure of of black leadership. Uh, the the uh, and and it goes to what you were saying about the consciousness not being there. I, I, right. I want to play. It was a clip that I shared with the, our listeners, the listening audience here. This was a while ago. I think it was in the winter time. Uh, Hakeem Jeffries up in New York was on Face the Nation. And the white host was asking him questions about uh, redistricting going on in New York. And it was interesting, his answer to her. I, I just want to play it because as a black man, I'm, I'm taking away the, the, the title right now of uh, – of you being an elected official to represent your community. Just as a black man, do you find this answer troubling? Let me play this, and uh, some of our listeners might be familiar with the, the clip. I'll play it again. I'm more than sure this is it. Let me pull it up. Differences between the two parties, mm -hmm. and I think once the voters understand that dynamic, the choice will be as clear as a sunny day in San Diego. <laughs> uh, I want to ask you a bit about what's happening uh, in your home state of New York. Uh, we've talked in this program previously about the redistricting that has been happening around the country, New York, to Democrats' advantage largely. But you've had this fight internally over the congressional map. Bottom line, did Democrats put their own communities at risk in your state by gerrymandering it to the degree they did? Well, the Court of Appeals was wrong in the decision that they made, both on the substance and in terms of turning over redistricting to an out-of-town, unelected special master and a judicial overseer in Steuben County, who is a Republican uh, leading Democrats control your state le legislature. This was a Democrat-led process. Right. The pro well, the process, unfortunately, was hijacked by the Court of Appeals. A bad process has now led to a bad result. You're talking about five different congressional districts where the black and Latino population was degraded. The only uh, uh, most significant Jewish district in the country has been detonated uh, for no good reason. Do you think uh, you have a, file, of many a case to file districts. in court? I think that the lawyers are taking a close look at that. Okay. But here's what's most important. We're going to remain united uh, because we believe in, in a very simple vision for America. Okay. Work hard, play by the rules. You should be able to provide a comfortable living for yourself and for your family, educate your children, okay. purchase a home, and retire with grace and dignity. Thank you, Congressman. Uh, Brother Byron, the solution from Hakeem Jeffries' mouth is work hard, play by the rules. You'll be able to provide a living for yourself and for your family, educate your children. He that, that's the answer. He is an embarrassment. Let me give you some history of Hakeem Jeffries. He's a real embarrassment. He came out of the Wall Street 
white, rich Wall Street law firm. He has no real history in our movement, no matter who his relative is, Dr. Jeffries. He has no, Linda Jeffries, he has no history in our movement. Secondly, he ran several times for assembly and lost against Roger Green. His opportunity to win the congressional seat came when I, from my a city council seat, I ran against Congressman Ed Town, and I shocked the political world uh, in New York City by getting um, 15,000 votes to Ed Towns' 19,000. Now, the reason why that was so shocking is that I had $135,000. He had $1.1 million. He was a 30-year incumbent. I had no clergy, no electeds and hardly any unions supporting me, and they was expecting him to get 80% of my 20%. It was 38 to 46. He was embarrassed. He fired some of his people. So the next time around, we didn't run because we knew that they would focus more, and I probably would have a more difficult time. I wouldn't even get that close because congressional districts are huge, and you have to have a lot of money and infrastructure. So here comes Hakeem Jeffries. Now it was Hakeem Jeffries running. Time around. Ed, Ed Times running. Because we and myself. Mm-hmm. So now I said, wow, they're going to split. And both of them uh, wear their yarmulkes more than they do any kufis. They are the pocket of the Jewish community. So they split in the Jewish vote. They split in the, the establishment vote. I said, I can come down the middle and win. So I jumped in again. And then Ed Town said to me, Charles, I'm going to drop out because he knew I would probably win and he didn't want to go out a loser. He said, do you think you could beat this guy if, um, if I drop out? And I said, no, sir. If you stay in, I'll beat both of you. But if you drop out, you've given him the seat because they know I could beat him and everybody in the world is going to come at me. And that's what happened. President Obama, the governor, the whole establishment, 23 unions that I supported more than him, uh, seven newspapers endorsed him, and all of the endorsements was stop Barron. We can't have Barron in Congress. And, oh, by the way, vote for Jeffries. They even said in the last week somebody put the Daily News had a big picture of me in the, in the post said KKK endorses Barron. Somebody got David Duke to put something on the, Internet saying he is endorsing me over Jeffries. So when the dust cleared, never in the annals of New York state politics has there ever been an alignment of power against one little black radical elected official running. And so he got like 70% and I got 30%. That's how he got in. Once he got in, he's been a failure locally in his own district. He, he he was an assembly person. His protege, Walter Mosley, he wanted to keep him in that position. DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, whipped him with an unknown person. So he lost that. And then he endorsed another establishment candidate for the Senate seat in his district. And DSA whipped him. In that seat, so he lost that. And then he ran people against me like he's doing right now. As we talk, this week I'll be running against his candidate 
in my own district, and he has done this against my wife and I for 10, 20 years, and we beat him every time. He's lost the only place where there was a red wave that they predicted in the last election that didn't occur, but it did occur in New York. So he is labeled as some superstar on his way to the second black presidency and and, and speaker and all of that stuff up there, but his base, he is pathetically weak in his base. And he embarrassingly said before the Jewish um, pact that he's trying to get some money from Israel today, Israel tomorrow, Israel forever. Now, how are you going to repeat George Wallace's segregation for day, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever? He mimicked a racist cracker like George Wallace to some Jewish organization that's supporting the oppression of the Palestinian people in the terrorist state of Israel. That's Hakeem Jeffries. <laughs> Before I pass it over to Brother Richard, let me go to a couple of these calls. It's been sitting here. Let's go to Toronto at 647-647. Oh, can you hear me? How are you doing? Yes, sir. How you doing? Uh, good. Uh, I was just thinking about Israel. I wanted uh, uh, Brother Barron to talk about, you know, people like Vicki Garvin and uh, uh uh, Vicki Garvin and the sister of, out, out of New York that was with, with Robert Williams, um, um, Mae Mallory. Uh, oh, that's they, my, oh, Mae Mallory, she was, oh, that's my sister. Yeah, well, what I wanted to talk to, people, let people know that, you know, the, the, those sisters had relationships with uh, international contacts like Mae Mallory and, and they had ties with Robert Williams and, and, and uh, mm-hmm. Mao Zedong. And mm-hmm. Vicky Garvin was actually on the plane when Nkrumah got overthrown. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, was, he got on, off the plane in, in China, and it, mm-hmm. uh, it might have been jo- Joe and Lai told uh, mm-hmm. Nkrumah, you know, that there have been a coup, blah 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 blah. But mm-hmm. I just want you to talk about uh, the, the you know the whole inter- the, the fact that black people have uh, not there's an element of our, us that, that have always saw internationalism as a part of our struggle. We need to have, uh, you know, allies, especially uh, allies that are on the left and uh, mm. uh, Bandan forces, you know, the uh, right. people of and, color and right. right. You know what? You're raising a powerful piece here. I was just talking to somebody about that the other day, how, you know, I come out of the Black Panther Party. I'm still a panther to my heart. And uh, Joe and Lau, Huey Newton, went to China and met with him and Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam, and, of course, Fidel Castro and Che Guevara and all of the revolutionary. See, we had a very strong international revolutionary movement in the 1960s and 70s. People like Osajifo Kwame Nkrumah, all of them went to the Bandung Conference in 1955 that Malcolm talked about, and the Asian and African nations came together to get rid of the yoke of imperialism and colonialism. And shortly after Bandung in 55, here came Ghana, liberated under socialism and Kwame Nkrumah in 1957. Here comes Julius Nyerere in the 1960s. Tanzania is united and liberated under socialism. Patrice Lumumba in the Congo, socialism in the 1960s. 
and Guinea-Bissau, in Guinea, socialism liberated, and uh, Samora Michelle and Mozambique, and Thomas Sankara and Burkina Faso, and Bambela and the Battle of Algiers, a great film. I suggested everybody um, check it out. So all of that revolutionary fervor, and then people like China and Russia then were supporting the revolutionary movements now. I don't know what they are morphed to now, but they were supporting those movements. But see, it is very important for us to understand that this central to the liberation of African people in the diaspora, wherever the boats dropped us off at, is the unification and liberation of Africa under socialism. Omali Yesatella and the African People's Socialist Party, they have their um, ideology of internationalism that puts us as the subjects of history and not some white folks' objects of history. And that is essential. That's why we say hands off the Uhuru movement, the Free the Uhuru Three, Yeshitele and his and some of his comrades have been harassed and indicted by the um, Justice Department of Biden because they decide that they're going to support Russia over Ukraine, and now they're going to try to say that the relationship with Russia that they're some pawns of Russia, who Russia got them to deal with reparations to cause division. They've been dealing with reparations for 50 years, and these brothers and sisters are indicted. So the international question is important, and that's why that's why the CIA and the, and the FBI is attacking the Uhuru movement because of their relationship to Africa, their relationship to the, the Caribbean, and they don't want us to stretch out. And Malcolm put us on the map internationally they don't want us to connect to Africa, the richest continent in the world. And if the resources of Africa were ever used for the African people in the diaspora and on the continent of Africa, we would have no poverty anywhere. And they know that. So they're continuing now the economic colonization of Africa. And then I'll just stop here by saying... Could I, could I ask you one more question? Don't, don't sure. you think that these, these B1 and these FBI, F, F, sorry, FBI, but FBI forces, don't you think they're on the side of the state as opposed to the side of oppressed African people? Oh, absolutely. The COINTEL program, that's the program in the 1960s, the counterintelligence program of the FBI. They used that to kill many of our leaders, discredit others. J. Edgar Hoover started with Marcus Garvey first, and after Marcus Garvey, they went after everybody, even Martin Luther King. And Malcolm was assassinated. King was assassinated. The, the Black Panther Party, 33 of us killed, and the rest, political prisoners, Free the Panther 21 in New York, the New Haven 8, the San Francisco 6. So they made us shift our whole movement to freeing political prisoners instead of liberating our people with survival programs like Huey Newton talked about so that we can feed children breakfast and make sure we had health care and free survival packages. So we had to begin to shift the focus of the movement. As we moved into the 70s and 80s, there wasn't even a civil rights movement. Shopton and them are no civil rights activists. <laughs> Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King, he died a radical revolutionary Socialist. 
In his I last did, year, I, 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 let me let me say ditto to that. But I want to get off the phone. But I just want to say, remember, Muhammad Ahmed is still in the land of the living, and we should. Uh, Max Stanford, who was with Robert Williams. Oh yes, Max Stanford. We need to, yeah. you know, we we need to, uh, you know. Yes. Uh, yes. Look well, out, you know all the him. good brothers. You know all the good brothers because he helped. Remember uh, African Liberation Day, A.O.D. Yes. Day in 1972. Max Stanford was very important with that, and that's when we connected to the armed struggle of Africa, and 60,000 went to Washington, D.C. to demonstrate at all the embassies, and that's when Mozambique and Zimbabwe and Swapo and, and Namibia and all of these revolutionary groups were engaged in armed struggle, and Africans in America supported that materially and ideologically. And they were you remember, you, rem you remember Walt, Walter Rodney was in San Francisco. Oh yes. And Elaine, yes. And Elaine Brown was in uh, Elaine Brown was in uh, was in uh, Washington was in yeah Washington D.C. and uh, uh, Rosie Doug Rosie Douglas was in Toronto and Angela yeah. Davis' sister was in Toronto. There I remember that was yeah. Well, brother, you got some good history, and I tell you the reason why I'm in the electoral arena now because we got to deal with power, state power. And in 1972, when they did the Black National Conventions, 10,000 of us came up, the, uh, came out there in all walks of life, but the moderate Democrats hijacked it. And, and Mary Baraka was trying to save it, but they hijacked it, and that's how we got all these Negroes elected now. However, right after that, 1973, Bobby Seale ran for mayor of Oakland, and Elaine Brown ran for city council. Huey Newton ran for Congress while he was in jail. And Eldridge Cleaver ran for president on the Peace and Freedom Party. And um, Jeremoji Abebe Ajaman, he started a, a, a party to run with Panthers and black radicals. That's why I'm in the electoral arena, because I want to continue. Bobby didn't get elected. Elaine didn't get elected. Angela never got elected. But I can say, as a black radical revolutionary, I got elected, elected. in the most powerful yeah. city. Right. You have our support. Thank you, sir. Thanks All right, you. Thank you. Thank you for your contribution. Thank you. Bye-bye. <clears throat> Richard, before I pass, let me go to Newport News. Newport News? Oh, hey, Elliot, can you hear me? Yes, sir. I'm just going to ask the gentleman I saw where he engaged some uh, lineage-based reparationists while they were getting that bill through his unit. I wanted him to explain to us what happened up there. I just caught the tail end. Okay. When he, what did, what's the question? Uh, can you ask, your, ask it again, please? Yes, I saw him at a press conference, and he had some lineage-based representatives from New York that were trying to shout over him or something. Oh, 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 yeah. Well, what we did, you know, you have some groups that can't pull no people together themselves, so they, they opportunistically come to your rallies with their two or three people and try to hijack the rally and put something, in, you know, in their direction. So what we did, there are some groups that go around these new groups. I, I, half of them people think the government set these groups up. They Johnny come lately to the reparation movement, and they're being very divisive and disrespectful at our rallies, and we ain't having that. 
And so they try to say, no, we should just get reparations for Africans in America and any other Africans in California of the 2.6 million or the 3 million in New York State, if you're from the continent or the Caribbean or South America or anywhere else, Panama, you cannot get it. And even the Africans in America, you have to be able to trace your ancestry back to slavery. Some dumb foolishness like that. Instead of um, we're saying we are united people, and Dr. Clark said it best when he said, we may have come over here on different ships, and when these ships dropped us off in the places that they did in the diaspora, we became that, Jamaican or Trinidadian or African-American or Brazilian or Panamanian. You became the identity of where the ships dropped you off. But we are who we are based upon where the ships picked us up from. And they picked us all up from Africa before they dispersed you anywhere else. You're an African, and you didn't lose that because you were dropped somewhere else. So we are fighting with these kinds of groups when they come to our rallies to try to um, monopolize it. Uh, was that was that did I did I uh, get that uh, Newport News? Oh yes, I just wanted to make sure because I was trying to figure it out on Twitter. Good, okay, appreciate it. Thanks for your All contribution. Right. Uh, Brother Barron, before I go to the next call, I, I, I was looking at the, because um, I didn't see the Twitter uh, uh, thing that our caller was uh, mentioning, but I, I was reading the Ask Amsterdam News account, and it mentions that you kind of gave a brief history on uh, New York City being the second largest slaveholding oh, yes, city yes, yes, in the country yes. next to Charleston. And you talked about how yeah. Africans from Africa, the Caribbean, and from mm-hmm. here fought mm-hmm. to end slavery in New York. G- give, That's right. Give that again, and then we'll go to our yeah, next I'm, I'm, th- I'm thankful for you to bring that up because the Africans that were in New York City, a lot of them came from the continent, and, and some came from, you know, some uh, Africans were broken in, so to speak, in the West Indies and then brought here. So how could you be against yourself? Because you sure it ain't no American that doesn't exist. In any event, in New York City, uh, was uh, established in 1626, and it was called New Amsterdam because of the Dutch. And the Dutch brought Africans here and stole the land from the Lenape, the indigenous people, the Manhattan. That's why they call it Manhattan. So the indigenous people that had their land stolen And then they brought us from Africa to build on the land. And so from 1626 to 1664, it was the Dutch. And then the English decided that they're going to fight the Dutch for the land here. And they had went to war with the Dutch, and they beat Peter Stuyvesant. And he had the nerve to say he could have won if he didn't have to feed his 200 enslaved Africans. But... The English in 1664 took over New Amsterdam, and they changed the name after the Duke of York to New York. That's how New York got its name. In 1712, Africans had enough. They rose up. They burnt the governor's mansion, and they were killing whites. And so the white community went to the slaveholders and said, you know, you got to do something because they're killing us, and you're enslaving them. So by 17 
1999, they had what they call the Gradual Emancipation Act. And they said, okay, the next male child that's born, we'll only keep him enslaved for 27 years and he's free. And the next female child that's born, we'll keep her enslaved for 25 years and he or she will be free. But then they said, that's unacceptable. What about us who are already enslaved? And they burnt some more stuff down. And so the Africans that united from the Caribbean, those who were born in America, those who were born in, in the, on the continent and who came here, they united, and slavery was abolished in New York City in 1827. It lasted to about 1840. Some of the names in New York City uh, street names are named after slaveholders, and New York was the second largest slaveholding city in the country, only to South, uh, Charleston, South Carolina. That's why they owe us. They stole us. They worked us. They owe us. <laughs> Richard, yes, yes. You know, um, it's two. One thing. I'm going back to um, Brother Baron. Going back to what um, Elliot and playing the um, tape of the now, what is it, the head of the Democratic Party, I guess that's what the, the um, chair, when he said about, um, what is that, work hard, uh, save and enjoy, uh, or something to that effect. And it's interesting because I'm looking at a statement by Lord Chambers um, reading something, and it said, work hard, live hard, and save hard. Um, which was a way to be able to bring usher in capitalism. But that, that, that was just something in hearing that tone. But the question I want to ask, you know, and the success that you've had in your district, and I heard a mayor make this point about development but not losing the people. Is it possible to have um, development in, where black people live and, and black people don't have to move out? And, I'm, and you've already stated that you're doing it, but uh, – it seems like most of the black elected officials, especially like in Philadelphia, with these developments, the communities, the people leave. Is it possible? I mean, it, I, it, wait, wait a minute, Rich. They don't leave on their own. They forced out. I mean, it, I, it, I, it, I, it, I, hopefully I'm making a, a coherent you know, question for you to kind of explain. Well, yeah, you know, uh, first of all, let me just get rid of the work hard thing. <laughs> Nobody worked harder than the enslaved Africans on the plantations, and we never got paid. So you should be, you know, you should be ashamed of yourself to even. If I right now would say to the people in my community, "There's a hundred jobs," you know, on Monday, meet me at nine o'clock. Six thousand people would show up. Mm-hmm. We have we have been working hard, you know. So you know that foolishness is just, you know, there's no validation for that. That's slave talk. That's a yes. a kind of a slave mentality that they instill in some of the most intelligent so-called people in our movement. But the bottom line, you know, it's gentrification. The whites, they did not want, particularly here in New York City, they didn't want the inner cities. You know, they locked us in the inner cities and they locked up the suburbs and we was like wanting so badly to move to the suburbs. And then all of a sudden, you know, oil was, gasoline was costing high, their businesses they had to get. Now they want to take back the city where they once were. Mm-hmm. In my beloved East New York, 70, 80, 
percent of it was white in 1960. The Irish, the Polish, Italians, well, no black people here. We were on the outskirts. So they decided that they were going to um, move out and burn up their places, Austin, so they can get the insurance, and they turned this into what they called a ghetto. So when I, you know, came on the scene, they were trying to rebuild it. We had a, a bunch of empty lots, drug dealing, crime, drug, and all of that. And so when we said, okay, we'll take it, and now we are 90% of my district is black and Latino, Latina, and we're rebuilding it. It's one of the, you know, we got some of the best housing, the best parks. We have three new $88 million schools built from the ground up, two new libraries coming in. One is already built, a community center for $20 million. We created thousands of jobs. Do we still have high crime? Yes because we have a low-income neighborhood, $36,000 for a family of three is the area median income. But we showed that you don't need gentrification to maintain some federal, state, and city services and to be able to get daycare centers and after-school centers. We did that. People think they have to gentrify because if they don't have whites in here, the government is not going to give them things. You know, that's, that's so, uh, oh, man, that's such a pathetic way to think. Even if you thought that was true, you got to fight against it. You don't say, okay, let's get some whites in here because they're not going to give us anything unless we have white neighbors. Um, we, don't, we don't have white neighbors, but yet we got a new library and new schools from the ground up. White communities don't have three new schools built from the bottom up. White communities don't have eight parks renovated for over $70 million that my wife, Inez Barron, and I did over the 20 years in my beloved East New York. We have white politicians come to me and say, how did you do it, Barron? I want to get some of these things in my neighborhood. White guys come in and ask me that. So it is just simply not true that we need to be gentrified. And secondly, if you have the right politicians, this is what I'm talking about, a power analysis. The city council has the power to pass the budget, not the mayor. The city council has the power to approve what can be built on city-owned land, not the mayor or his housing division. The city council passes all municipal laws, and the city council has oversight power over every city agency. That's in city councils usually across the country, but that's how it is in New York. So if a developer comes into East New York and wants to build 100 units of housing and tells me it's affordable and pulls out his pretty pictures, the first thing I'm going to say, affordable to who? How you define an affordability? And it's through the area, median income. And in New York, they define affordability as 80% of the AMI. New York City's AMI. New York City's AMI is $109,000. 80% of that is a family making about $90,000. Mm. And then I would ask them, what's my neighborhood AMI? Do you know this fool told me he didn't know? I said, you know what? You just insulted my intelligence. This meeting is terminated. No, no, no. I can look it up now. It would have taken him three seconds to look it up. I made him wait to three weeks for another meeting. So he came back and told me it was 36. And I said, now let me tell you what this project is going to look like. 
we're not doing 80% of the AMI. 80% of the project is going to be those making $25,000, and $45,000 household income. The other 20%, some of us do make sixty, seventy, dollars and 80000 will be for them. We're not having 50 studio apartments because we have multiple families. You're going to have 10 studios and 90 multiple family rooms, uh, apartments. And the rent is not going to be through the sky. In New York, you can get a studio for 20, 25, 2500 a month. I told him the studios are going to be five, six hundred a month. The one bedroom is going to be seven, eight hundred dollars a month. The two bedrooms is going to be nine to eleven, and the three bedrooms is going to be eleven to fourteen hundred. And you know why I could do that? Because his project, LU three forty seven, was in the subcommittee on land use called the zoning committee. It's seven members of my colleagues on that committee. If they vote the project down, it's dead. If they vote it up, it moves to the land use committee, and that's 21 people. The chair is going to call me up and say, Baron, LU34, whatever, 124 is in your dish. You want it? No, sir. That, that's dead. That's power. That's what I mean by power. I didn't have to demonstrate press conference. Oh, that's not fair. They gentrify my community. My neighborhood's not gentrified. These other Negroes got in office. Every black community that's gentrified in New York City, Harlem, Bed-Stuy, Crown Heights, you know, all of those communities were gentrified with black politicians in the power seat Mm. because they thought progress was 25% affordability 75% 75% market. That's how you get gentrified, through Negroes. <laughs> you, you know, and if I may, um, a couple of weeks ago, there was uh, a, um, in Philadelphia, assemblage of black mayors. They had, <laughs> had a function. I don't, I don't know if you were aware of it and whatever. And I remember, because um, I went to the, um, the, 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 party, <laughs> the party part of that, what, what I wanted to get to, to get your feedback, you, you see these um, young mayors, I think uh, Roz Baraka and, and ex-mayor um, Nutter were, uh, to, to the session I went to, they were, you know, um, presenting. Um, what is this with these mayors coming together and and primarily pushing um, for what they call a security um, and um, having more police um, you know, and it was that other thing, Elliot, the, the, the whole thing of the mayor, the new mayor, the possible new mayor here is talking about constitutional stop and frisk. Yeah. Constitutional stop, stop, stop and frisk. <laughs> what, what is your, your view of this new assemblage of black mayors? Um, what are they organizing amongst themselves? Well, first of all, I can speak quite a matter of factly about the black mayor from New York City, Eric Adams. I call him Eric Mayor Cop Adams. He was a former captain in the NYPD. Here's the bottom line. There is no constitutional stop and frisk. <laughs> okay. okay. It, it, it's, it's just stupid. It just doesn't make any sense. That's number one. Number two, you have to get to the root causes of crime. 
people don't commit crimes because there's not enough cops. Mm-hmm. I don't know of a, a, a person in my community that got up one morning and said, you know what, there's not enough cops out here. I think I'll be a criminal. <laughs> or they didn't build enough jails to put me in, so let me be a criminal. Or the laws are not tough enough. They're kind of lenient, so, so let me be a criminal. People commit crimes because of capitalistic exploitation of black and brown communities that create poverty, unemployment, and serious mental health issues dealing with the stress of surviving in our community. Yes. That's why they commit crime. So I told the mayor, I said, how dare you cut 4% from every city agency in New York, including health, education, hospitals, seniors, youth, libraries. You cut $2 billion from them. And by the way, at a time where we have a surplus in the budget, not a deficit, he cuts $2 billion, and the police department has an $11 billion budget, 50,000 police officers, and 36,000 of them are on foot and another 14,000, 15,000 are civilians. You also are against no cash bail. And when I was in the state assembly, we passed a bill that no cash bail for minor nonviolent offenses. You cannot impose bail on them and they're stuck in Rikers, pretrial detainees. I'm not even talking about people who committed any, convicted of any crime. Pretrial detainees. You know, how do you do that when these folks don't have $1,500 and you don't have speedy trials? So, my brother, if you didn't come from a, a poor family, a struggling family, and you jumped the turnstile or you did the, took a little candy bar or something, and you got caught for robbery or you got in a fight and assault, whatever, whatever a minor crime like Khalif Browder, who they said stole a backpack and went to Rikers Island, didn't have the $3,000 bail. He spent years on Rikers because we don't have speedy trials. And he wound up coming out committing suicide ruins his life for stealing a backpack. So that kind of stuff is what Eric supports. So he said the reason why crime is going up when he first year and then now is because of us, us, us socialists. We, we, we had the bail reform. No, crime was going up because you cut all the city agencies. Crime was going up because you didn't listen to us when we said make up a come up with a multi-billion dollar anti-poverty program. Crime is going up because you didn't have a workforce development program. Crime is going up because you don't have a commitment to getting people out of homeless shelters into permanent apartments with rent subsidies until they can get on their feet. Crime is going up because you've got police officers that stop, frisk, and question unconstitutionally. Crime is going up because the police crime of brutality has gone up. Crime is going up because you refuse to look at that $106 billion city budget 
and the $229 billion state budgets, countries don't have that. Many state budgets are smaller than New York City's budget, and you refuse to do that for the poor. And in that same budget, rich get tax breaks on land. They get land dirt cheap. They used to get it for a dollar. And then they get subsidies to build their projects. You know, when we get free money from the government, it's called welfare. When they get it, it's cute, subsidies. I told one developer, he said, Charles, you know, them low, low rents and low AMI, I won't be able to make profit. I said, I already looked at your portfolio. You thought you was going to make $16 million on this project? Well, you're not. You're going to make $5 million, and you go ahead and get your welfare. He said, what welfare? Your subsidies. You're getting free money on every apartment. So you can do it, and whether you like it or not, I'm going to make you do it. <laughs> let's go. Let's go to six six four six six four six. Hey, how you doing, Charles? How's everything going? I'm doing well, thank you. Happy Father's Day to all of you. Mm-hmm. You too, brother. Hey, hey, listen. Two two things. Number one, you left out another one of these. Um, I'll be nice. Clowns, Gregory Meeks. Along with, um, and and, and you know, the funny thing about these cats, man, we don't know these cats for numerous years as far as meeks go, because when I was living out there, um, in his district, um, I had the opportunity to meet him another couple of times. I mean, for him to metamorph into who and what he is today. It's really embarrassing, man. It's 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 really a disservice because even though his community in a sense has changed because a lot of Caribbeans have taken over, but the point of the matter is, you know, when he attacked the African continent in the manner in which he did and got that passport, you know, it just allowed that clown Jeffries to be in a position to do what he's doing, which I'm going to be honest with you. I don't understand, even though I do understand how he got in the position to be the speaker and that close to power. Cause he ain't a bright dude, even though he's beholding the wall street. But you know what I really wanted to, to, to speak to you about. I used to do real estate, but I gave it up, man. I'm, you know, I, I'm in the retirement mode. But the deal is this, two things. One is, are you grooming anybody to take your place when you and the queen decide y'all going to get this up? Because in my community, this character, it, it is funny. I saw him a couple of weeks ago. Charlie Rango, he didn't do anything to leave someone that looked like me and you to replace him. You know, now they got a non-talking, I ain't going to say it, but a non-talking Latino that ain't really doing nothing. But my real issue is with all of this success, because it's really success, and to be honest, in New York, nobody talks about your success the way that they should, Charles, because what you've done out there in Brooklyn is basically the blueprint 
for how to deal and address black communities. So, well, you know, let me just tell you this. I am not waiting for people to talk about that. I was busy doing it. We are going to launch a social media. We're going to launch a mass media. We're going to launch a mass line communication. I have a book out called Speaking Truth to Power. Uh, in the book, I have a a chapter in there because it's a compilation of about 70, 80 articles I've written. One article, How to Beat the Machine. And then another article is on Operation Power, which is our organization. And it shows all accomplishments and it shows how we beat the machine. You know, we actually did better than Ocasio, uh, Alexandra. She phenomenally beat uh, uh, Joe Crowley, who was next in line for speaker. And because there was such a phenomenal victory and the right wing wanted to build her up so that she can be competing against Nancy Pelosi and they could use her. But what we did in Brooklyn, not only did I win the city council seat, Operation Power candidate, and my wife won the state assembly seat, then we switched seats and she went to the city council and I went to the state. But we also won the district leadership seats, male and female. We also won the majority of the seats on the community board and we also won with a judge, and we also won the state committee seats and the judicial delegates. We wiped out the Democratic Party club. Ocasio has all of these folk above her and below her. Below her, she still has the club there. She still has to deal with the city council, state assembly, and all of that. We wiped them out. That's one thing. Secondly, we could talk about them all we want. Jeffrey's got that position because Nancy Pelosi, he's Nancy Pelosi's puppet. Barbara Lee was there for, for almost 25, 30 years. She was the one fighting for it. Barbara Lee came out of California. She was working with Ron Dellums, and Barbara Lee and Dellums was tight with the Black Panther Party, and she was not under the control of Nancy Pelosi. So Nancy Pelosi got Uncle Jeffrey's to really get the votes for she got the votes for him and that pushed barbara lee back that's how he got that position but i'm saying this to say they don't care what you call them because you can't beat them we gotta do what we did in east new york i stopped calling them ancient mom and uncle tom this one did you see what they did they did this they i said you know what y'all let's take them out that's what we gotta build a national and we have a group working on that. We have a national black radical convention probably coming up in sometime September and October. We got some groups from Pittsburgh, uh, independent radical parties, revolutionary parties from uh, Baltimore, from um, uh, Los Angeles. We got about 10 groups. We had about 12 states represented at our first convention. We need to build a black radical independent political movement and take these folk out. We have the blueprint right in my book on how to do it, and I'll be glad to come to your area and show you how to do it. And that's what has to happen, because as long as you can't beat them, they don't care what you say. <laughs> wow. Hey, hey, Charles, let me let me ask you this. In regards to um, the thing that you do with I think what what is your percentage with uh as they call affordable housing in the projects that you um approve? What what's the percentage? My, my thing is that no 
elected official should let them go over 60% of the AMI. And you know what's, you know what's really challenging, and this is, I don't know what to do with this. Like, say, today, if I get them to do, like when I first came in, let me back up. When I first came in, the area median income of New York was $86,000 for a family of three. My neighborhood AMI was 36000 for a family of three. So if I did 80% of the AMI, which is HUD's definition of affordability, that would be 64000 and that's twice as much almost as the neighborhood thing. So I would go below. I would go 40 to 60. But what happens, if I get a developer to do 60% of the AMI at that AMI back then for six fifty forty thousand, and if they take three four years to build it, the AMI goes up. So that sixty percent turns to eighty thousand instead of the forty thousand I had it at. So I'm working on that, but getting them to build it quicker, or me just go even lower, so that if it does go up, it still meets our neighborhood AMI. And I know that gets a little convoluted with all the numbers and stuff like that. But please study the area median income, the area median income, and what's your neighborhood area median income, and you define what affordability is based on that. Okay, last thing, Charles. Do you ever take the opportunity to have these type of discussions with other politicians that are in predominantly black and Latino communities, and are those representatives receptible to your... I did, I did one better. Yes, indeed. I did one better, and I'm still doing this. I invite them out to East New York, and I said, look, I showed them the projects, and I showed them that the people are black. You don't see no... And I tell them straight up, you don't see no white people in this building? This is one I approve. And I let them actually see it. And then we have Operation Power. We have Liberation Saturdays every uh, fourth Saturday and second Saturday of the month. We have a a Zoom on Liberation Saturday. I do teaching there. I've even went over with them with their project. They've come to me, Charles. uh, You know, the speaker's giving me pressure on my project. And I would tell them, listen, don't worry about the speaker. Go to the committee. And once you get that committee approved, that's where the power is. You got to do a power analysis. So absolutely. I don't know if you remember that sister, uh, Christian Richardson Jordan from Harlem. Um, there was a project that they wanted to build up on 145th yeah, Street. Yeah, now, right. Now check that out. I told her, she said, Charles, can you meet with me and the developers? I said, absolutely, Christian, because that was her first term in there. I said, but when you go there, don't just say you don't want this, you don't want that. Tell them this is what you would approve. And I told her to, you know, come up. This guy wanted to build two 34-story buildings. Got Al Shopton to support him because he was going to give Al Shopton's organization some office space and the Civil Rights Museum in the middle. <laughs> Shopton supported him. And she said, but he got Shopton. 
And I think the speaker wanted to said, listen to me, my sister, just go to that committee, get that chair on your side. That's where the power is. Sharpton has no power, zero power. I'll guarantee you he will, with his lying self, he will back up and say, oh, I wasn't really supporting that because we can And that's what him. he did. That's exactly what he did. Remember, brother? Now, I went to that meeting, and this little cracker, arrogant developer, I was sitting there, and she was explaining to him that she wouldn't do that. She would do this if he did 40 to 60% of the AMI, not 80%. He said, excuse me, how, how is that going to be economically feasible? You tell me how. I said, whoa, 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 my sister, can I respond to him? I said, you know, you shut the hell up and don't you say another damn word for the rest of this goddamn meeting. Who the hell you think you're talking to like that, first of all? Secondly, I'm telling you, all of you lawyers of this, you shut them up or this meeting is terminated and you will not be able to. community board thing? No, this is what at a private meeting that she had. Community of 10 was supporting her, but we had her and the developers. Developers try to meet with the council person first. The council person. Then it goes, see, they have what they call the EULA process, the Uniform Land Use Review process. It starts with the community board. If they say yes, that's advisory. Then it goes to the borough board. If the borough president says yes, that's advisory. Then it goes to the city planning or the mayor's agency. If they say no, the city council never sees it. But if they say yes, the final decision is on the city council. We have the power. Harlem didn't have to be gentrified, and neither did Bed-Stuy, because we, the council, has the power. The final word is the council. We accept it, reject it, or modify it so it's acceptable. And that's what she did. And she said, but they're going to get on me. I said, yeah, they're going to get on you. They're going to, just like they said me, I'm anti-development, and he's going to dish you in the media. He's going to try to make you look bad. And that's what they did. And I said, but I guarantee you he's going to come crawling back to the table. Shopton's going to bail out because we have the power. And that's exactly what he did. What he came back crawling to the table, and they kept saying, why does he have to be here, meaning me? I said, who the hell? You don't tell her who she can bring to a meeting. He don't live in Harlem, and neither do you, goddammit. So shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and then so with bot- the bottom line, what happened is that they put so much pressure on that sister. I mean, the unions came out against it like they do on me now. They're coming out against me. They're going to do some negative mailing. I got a week left, you know, but I'm used to this. She wasn't. They they got so much pressure. The police, the PBA has a truck running through my neighborhood with my picture on it and like a video saying Charles Barron, (laughs) They're so stupid. They have a truck going around now with an image of me and my name, big truck, and Charles Barron is for defunding the police. Our people ain't even reading that. They're calling me up. Hey, Barron, I saw your truck. I'm voting for you. <laughs> but did, they, but did they get rid of her, Charles? Did no. They, did what they get happened, rid of No, what happened, she was under so much pressure, she dropped out. Whoa. She, she dropped out of the race. And I said, sister, please hold on. She said, I can't. My partner, you know, my family is just too much pressure, Charles. I said, but I'm telling you, it'll, it'll, once, it'll cease once you just keep your foot on the pedal. They don't have the power. 
But my sister couldn't take depression. And so she dropped out of the race. <laughs> and she's given Thanks up the seat. Thanks again always, Charles. And hang in there and keep up the good work, man. And we go win the fight, hopefully. Oh, oh we definitely will. Thanks for your contribution, brother. <clears throat> okay. We're in conversation with our guest this evening, activist organizer and New York City councilperson for the 42nd District, Brother Charles Byron, is with us. Politician that's working directly for the people. Let's go to 215. 215? Good evening, Brother Elliot. Good evening, Brother Richard. And good evening, Brother Barron. Good evening, Brother. Happy Father's Day to you and all the fathers out there, Brother Barron. It's an honor and pleasure to talk to you, my brother. First, I got to ask you, Brother Barron, are you sure you're an elected official? <laughs> because I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm an elected revolutionary. Yes, sir. Well, because I'm telling you, brother Baron, I'm 61 years old. I never, outside of Dave Richardson here in Philadelphia, the late great Dave Richardson, who was a state representative, I never heard a brother talk like talk so plain like Malcolm said. You plain spoken, brother. You, you know, you speak Look, truth to power. You know. Thank you, sir. And I want to let y'all know, I don't be fronting for y'all. This is what I say on the floor. Oh, I believe it. Look, you can look at some of the stuff in the state assembly. I say this on the floor in front of all of them. I interrupted Governor Cuomo's state of the state address. Mm-hmm. The, the most powerful, y'all look that up on YouTube, you'll see it. Uh, the most powerful man in the state was making his state of the state, 2,000 mm-hmm. of his people. And I jumped up to you, hypocrite. You know, but again, brother Bear, I love you, man, because like I said, you remind me of Dave, because Dave was, Dave was he did the same thing to the to the governor up there at Ridge, because Ridge was trying to oh, yeah, know, yeah, get legislation yeah. to kill to kill our brother Momia Jamal and, and uh yeah. Jamal. And Dave's told him straight up, he said, You ain't he said, he said we don't scare nobody. He said, We're gonna support That's Momia, right. we don't give a damn what That's you right. say. And and, and Dave's told, told him right to his face, man. See y'all men. Yeah. See, see, see like these cowardly spineless niggas that we got representing us on the city, state and federal level. See you just like brother Dave, uh, uh brother Ben. You're a man, and you're a yes, black sir. man first, and Thank all that other stuff second. You're welcome, because that's, what, you, that's what you need and stuff, you know, because these people, man, I'm telling you. And see, if you notice, Brother Ben, I, I know I want to hold you tough, because I know I know, I know coming in the show, I'm trying to put everything into a capsule. See, check this out. If you notice, it's parallels, and Brother Richard brought up earlier, it's so many parallels between Philadelphia politics and, and New York. The, and it's, and it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's two cities oh, right yeah. close by. But you see how the black city council act in New York, how they act in Philadelphia, how... Like you said, how to get these developers all these breaks and stuff, art and stuff at the at the at the at the, mm-hmm. at, the, at, the at the disenfranchisement of black people is right here in Fluffy, the predominantly black city council, uh, brother Charles. They gave how many 20, city council members do you have? I, what, Ellie, what's the number? I, I, I forgot the, the the numbers total. What's the you number, Ellie? Because I, I, I think it's forgot. what is it? Thirteen, Richard. I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's thirteen. And how many are black? Th- at, at one time, it was nine, and the thirteen was black. Wow. Exactly. Wow. And, 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 wow. But, but here's the thing, Brother Ben, with, with them being in the majority, they voted for a 20-year tax abatement for these rich white developers Ooh. to come in here. And, and while black people being gentrified out and stuff, and, and, and the black Look city council president, he's black. He's outgoing. Oh. He's black. So you see, oh. the, you see the same parallels happening in New York. You see in Philadelphia. Oh, yeah. They're selling black people down the drain. And see, like, and, and you, if you know, you made a comment, Brother Ben. You said they're having the right 
people in office, because this is why I tell Brother Elliot and Brother Richard all the time, I say, as long as we as black people keep on voting for these individuals, whether they be black men or black women, on a city, state, and federal level, we're going to continue to get what we get. When we start voting voting for people like Charles Barron and others that think like you, then we'll have progress. And and, and, and again, it's it's not rocket science, brother. This is just common sense. As long as you vote for individuals that's working against you, because like you said, they don't care about you call them names and stuff. You've got to take no. them suckers out. Get them out of office, out. man. That's, that's remember, what you got to do. Yeah, I remember coming to Philadelphia years ago. Didn't y'all have like a Milton Street or somebody? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Yes, my man. He just he just made transition this year. Oh, he did. Yes, he did. Wow. Yeah, Early this year, he made transition. Beautiful brother. Yeah, I, I, remember, I remember coming to Philly and, and he was the mayor and um, something he was in somehow. Oh, no, his brother, his brother was the mayor. His brother was the oh, mayor. His brother, okay. And a disgrace, and a disgrace. By the way, not no, not, he used to. Yeah, I say remember. He, I he, remember. He That's why they, these people were so against him because he was doing some corrupt something. I don't know. But anyway, you know, it, it, can you imagine? I I did a um, a study of some of the city councils across the country. I said, wow. This is how we can make revolution from the bottom up. That's why yes. I'm in this. We got to make revolution from the bottom up. We can talk reparations. We can talk free political prisoners. But if we have reparations without liberation, we are still going to spend our money on the American plantation. Yes. If we yes. free our political prisoners without liberation, they're going to come home to the American plantation. So we have to connect reparations to liberation. We have to connect we need jobs to liberation. We have to connect anti-poverty programs, workforce development programs, you know, making developers do affordable housing to liberation. Because if that's what makes me a radical politician is that I'm not just dealing with the symptoms of this colonial capitalist system. The symptom is poverty. Yes. The symptom is unemployment. The symptom is homelessness and crime and inadequate health care, miseducation. Those are symptoms of a deeply rooted, fatally flawed colonial capitalist system in America that turned our black communities into domestic colonies. See, yes. we have to have the right ideology, the right analysis. We live in domestic Colonies, a colony is when an external force controls the internal institutions, just like the colonialism in Africa. Yes. A foreign state took control over a local state in Africa and took all the resources, and the whites were in the power position. They had a white prime minister of Rhodesia, that is now liberated Zimbabwe. They had all of these whites. So colonialism, where this foreign state took control of the resources and the human labor of a sovereign state for the benefit of the foreign state. And then when they realized, whoa, 20 million blacks and only a million of us, and we start to rise up, then came a more sinister form of colonialism, Neo-colonialism. Yes. The new way to colonize us, as Dr. Asajik Po Kwame Nkrumah said in his book, Neo-colonialism, The Last Stage of Imperialism, the new way to colonize us is to put a black face up in there. So yes. most of these black 
uh, African leaders are colonial puppets sure. of capitalism. Yes. And so, but a, a more sophisticated thing happened in America. They exported colonialism to the southern plantations, and what they did is they, instead of taking the African state, even though they had their hands on all of it, they decided that, hey, we'll set up these black communities here in America, and even though they're the majority in the community, they will not own the land. They will not own any of the institutions, not the police, not the education, not housing. We will control all of that, the economic system. We will give them jobs, and we will run the whole thing from other communities. So Rosewood, this is why segregation or integration hurt. Rosewood and um, Tulsa yes, sir. in the yes, 1920s, they own the land, yes, they, they own oil wells, mm-hmm. they own all of the institutions, the schools, the, the churches, the social clubs. They police themselves. They did all of that in the 1920s. Hey, think about that, brother. Man. Think about back, that. In the 1920s. Yes. And then they, of course, came and destroyed them and, and took it back. But now, here we are in the 21st century. We are a $1 trillion consumer nation. Yet, we don't have a single black community in the nation that looks like Rosewood and, and isn't that or that truth? looks like Tulsa. Isn't Even my beloved truth? East New York, I got affordable housing and all of that. We don't own that. Mm-hmm. I fight to get black developers, you know, when they come with this WB, w, uh, MWBE, minority women in business enterprises, and we want some of the subcontracts. Get the hell out of here. We want to <laughs> be, we want to be, the, the 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 major contractor. We yes, don't want to be subcontractors. We want a development. So I got some black developers. And now I said, now y'all ain't going to do a capitalistic thing like that. Me, we don't want no black capitalism. I want you to be able to be more community oriented. I know you're not yes. going to be a socialist structure like I want, but at least you're not. You're going to do affordability, but you're going to be the general contractor not a subcontractor yes sir so that's key that's yes. key so now i have at least two projects most of them white boys that because uh, i can't pick the developer mm-hmm. what i do when i don't think they have the right developer when i started to try to get more black developers i had to make excuses why i'm not going to support this project i can't mm-hmm. say I ain't right. supporting because y'all got a white boy I had to manipulate it until I sure. said, they said, all right. And, then, and I got a couple of black developers in there. And we have at least three or four developments that are owned by black developers. And let me tell you this thing that I did, which was deep also. Mm-hmm. One developer, I said, you're not going to develop housing on every piece of the land because we'll be overdeveloped with housing. We need libraries. We need sure. community centers. We need mm-hmm. green space. We need gardens. We are a community. So don't look at property here, and the only thing you have is ting ting in your eye, dollar sign. I know signs, that's right. Housing, I know that's right. Housing. So I said, that ain't happening. So this one developer, he said, all right, um, 
uh, what do you want me to do? I said, I want you to build a community center with me. I have $3 million in my capital budget from the city council. I'll put that in. You put six in, and I'll get six more from the city, and let's do this community center. And then, since the community center ain't making you no money, after the 30-year loan, I want you to give us that center for a dollar. We got it. We did it. We did it. Man Up, Inc. Man Up, Inc. is an organization, 18 Mitchell, they're the violence interrupters, and I got them millions of dollars, and now they are running the Prince Joshua Avito Community Center. I want you all to come to New York. I want to take you on a tour. I want you to see this stuff. Me telling you, you know, you got to come and check it out. I know that's right. We run that center. The, the man up runs it, and Good Shepherd runs it. Black people, we're running it, and when it's over, we're gonna own it. And, and I believe that it too, brother. Brother, that's why I say all praises be to Allah for you, brother, because you 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 one of a kind. And I'll say two more things, and I'll be and I'll be off and stuff. You know, brother Barry, you made a good analogy a few minutes ago. You said, and I always puzzled me too, like you say. A, a black man will wake up in the morning, like you say, and say, "Wow, you know, it's no police around, or a lack of police. I'm gonna commit a crime. You know, it's you know, or or or, or they building so many, not enough prisons, so I'm gonna commit a crime." Like you say, the poverty and stuff, and we know some like some of the crime in our community can be horrific. We all know it. We're not denying that, but like you say, there's reasons for that. Like you say, when you when you, when you have capital exploitation, we we that lack of resources, like you say, with the mayor doing in New York taking stuff out. What do what the hell do you expect to happen? You know what I mean? So I mean, you you, you, you let you. Let it out so 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 beautifully. And, and my other comment before I get off, uh, Brother Brandon, is we, with the Russian analogy. You remember when you said about how the Ukraine movement was being attacked because they said it was, you know, mm. sympathetic towards Ukraine. You, you see how the, you, this white man had the same playbook. He did the same thing back with Paul Robeson. When Paul Robeson, oh yeah, we know That's when right. he went up to Russia, he said, I, for the first time in my life, I felt like a human being. And went through and went through Joe McCarthy and stuff and, and House Select Committee. Are oh, you a communist? You a, a communist sympathizer? Come on now. I mean, they, 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 they come with the same old playbook over and over again, man. These people, I'm mm-hmm. telling you, man, they, they don't change. The devils don't change. They just keep doing the same That's thing right. over and over again, man. But anyway, That's brother, right. man, it's an honor to talking to you. And I, and, I, and I hope that, you know, we can have, have, have Elliot and, 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 and Brother Richard and myself and others from Philly come up there and, and t- take a tour of your area, man. Oh, man, I would love that. You need to be replicated. You need to be replicated. I would love you're doing that, beautiful man. Thing. You, you're welcome, brother, I would man. love that. And what you can do in the meantime until you get here, Yes, sir. Go go on YouTube, Charles mm-hmm. Barron, Radical Politics. Charles on Barron, YouTube, okay. Charles Barron, yeah. Radical Politics, and Charles Barron Legacy on YouTube. Yes, you will sir. see the housing, the parks, and you'll see me talking about stuff, too. I mean, they got angry because I brought Robert Mugabe to City oh, Hall. My man, my hero, my man. I brought him to City Hall. Wow. You know, the speaker said, because I noticed they were bringing all these white, you know, people from Israel and <laughs> Ireland and Italy. And so I went into the speaker's office, Mika Miller, I said, I'm bringing an African leader. He said, great, great. And so I need the, the, the red room. That's the prestigious room. And he said, no problem. I said, who, who, who are you bringing? I said, Robert Mugabe, Charles, don't do that to me. <laughs> I said, what do you mean do that to you? Why are you going to bring your politics to me? Like, I said, first of all, this ain't your house. Wow. This is the people's house. Yes, sir. You're just a facilitator. You ain't no damn dictator now. <laughs> I know, you know that's right. And I brought Robert Mugabe to City Hall. Look, yeah. they got angry. I was in the red room, 
and I got an attitude because I do get attitudes, mm-hmm. and I didn't like how you know that that they, he was trying to tell all the other council members not to come. Bill De Blasio, the former mayor, he came. And when he ran for mayor, they got on him about that. He said, I made a mistake. I would never do that. Of course. Of course. <laughs> but, of course. But I got him. I got him. And then I said, you know, let's go up to the chambers. That's the most prestigious house in uh, City Hall. That's where we do all our voting and stuff. When the New York Times had a picture of me and I grabbed Mugabe's hand, you know how you hold your hand up together? Yes, sir. <laughs> that was in the Times, the Post, the News. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Just, mm-hmm. hey, that was going to say, Brother Ben, it's, always, it's like being pictured with Minister Farrakhan. You get the they, same reaction. Look, oh, they get mad reaction. at me because they said, what do you think about <laughs> Minister Farrakhan? I said, I love him. And what do you think about Minister Farrakhan? He said uh, Jews have a gutter, dirty religion. No, he said any religion that does A, B, C, D is a gutter religion, and he's correct. What do you think of him by saying uh, Hitler was great? No, he said Hitler was wickedly great. That's what he said. And anybody that can conquer the whole world almost, Mm -hmm. you can't be a fool. So what else do you got against Farrakhan? And let me tell you something. I am not one that you can do your little Farrakhan litmus test with because that's my brother. But, 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 but let me say this. I, I'm, I'm off on this one. You know, it's amazing how they about how Hitler, Hitler's probably so bad. We know he's a wicked dude. But I don't see black people. I see white people for the most part. And George, white Jewish people making all these things about Hitler on TV, movies about him, cartoons, you name it. Yeah, I don't see black people making all these the things about Hitler. Part, you know? they, they were they afraid of Farrakhan. Anybody that could bring two million of us <laughs> to one spot, they can't even do that. Exactly. And then right after that, even though other people criticized him for it, I thought it was a great move. Right after that, he went to Africa. Exactly. And, and making that connection. So, you know, any leader that speaks out against the system like that, you know, first, they wasn't messing with Farrakhan and they wasn't messing with the nation too much with the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Because when you say you're a nationalist, but you're not trying to take over their thing, you're not trying to mm-hmm. do a revolutionary move to change their system, they'll tolerate you. Sure. But sure. then when they think you're moving out of that, and you start getting into the electoral arena, and you start doing certain things, then you become a threat. Yep. Exactly. As long as he was talking about integrating a, a, a restaurant or a bathroom, <laughs> But when he starts yeah. moving to internationally in scope, that's what he comes Oh, that's it. Yeah. See, once, once yeah. Farrakhan said, look, if he said, we're going to separate. Mm-hmm. Y'all don't want yep. it? Fine. Separate. Mm-hmm. They'll roll with you for a little bit on that. Mm-hmm. But when you say we're going to separate and we're going to fight you because of what you're doing to our people, yes. whether it's in Africa, the Middle East, and, and then, oh, they got mad at me. I went to the Gaza Strip, you know, and, wow. and, and Hamas. Wow. You know, I remember Gil Noble from Like It Is. He said, Charles, you're going Gil to the Noble. Gaza Strip. Yep, love that brother. He was so nervous. He said, you going to the Gaza Strip? Why? I said, because we got a million dollars worth of humanitarian aid. And those people, you should see what they're doing to the people there. I went to the Gaza Strip. And first the, the speaker was telling me, uh, I don't know. I said, what do you mean you don't know? You went to Israel? Yeah, but uh, Israel, Israel, what? Israel's a terrorist state, and they're occupying Palestinian land, and they're murdering babies. They're murdering babies in Palestine. 
the UN put it out. Last time they attacked the Gaza Strip, you know, and West Bank and all of that, 500 babies. What are you talking about? Blowing their lands to smithereens, and that's their land. Truth be told, when we really get to history, that's African people's land, but that's a whole nother lesson. <laughs> but, you know, so I, I went to the Gaza Strip. I went to Venezuela and met with Hugo Chavez's people. He wasn't there, but I met with his top aides. I went to Tanzania, and I wow. met with Julius and Nere's people. You know, I went to Cuba, and I met with the president. And Raul was out of town, but I met with his president wow. and, and Cuba because I told people, I will determine who my friends and enemies are. They got a whole dossier on me on the ADL, and I didn't realize it was at all these rallies. So you can keep all the notes you want. Matter of fact, you don't have to have no secret dossier. Just interview me. I'll tell you, yeah, no, that's, that's I'll tell you everything you want to hear. But wow. see, it's important that we be strong black men. You know, yes. keep your spine straight. Yes. And, and I'm telling you, after I interrupted the governor, the most powerful man in New York State, Andrew Cuomo, he had the nerve to call me up. Mm-hmm. I never met with him before he wanted to meet. That's not him. Meet with y'all. Meet you publicly because I know the white man is afraid of two things: the media and the masses. Yes, indeed. If you get media attention and the masses, you got some segment of the masses you can organize. They're fearful of you. And if you got spine, he called me up. He said, uh, "Assemblyman, uh, I'm not your enemy. You know, uh, I want to work with you. I'm going to bring a park into your district, the Shirley Chisholm Park." Nice park and everything. He was, I'm putting $20 million into it, and guess what? I want you to stand with me, and I'll give you all the credit. I said, Governor, I'm a black man that you have never met. I'm not standing with you. You should do the park, and you can't give me no credibility. I am discredited if I stand with you. Wow. So I think you should do that for my people, and I'm sure you'll get a bunch of blacks that will be more than glad to stand with you, but not this black man. I know that's right. Well, and you know what? He did, he did the part. He did the part. Yes, sir. Wow. Thanks for your contribution, well, brother. Thank, thank you, brother Elliot. Thank you, brother Rich. And, and brother Ben, Allah bless you, brother. You keep doing what you're doing, brother Baron. You, you're, you're a man among men. Thank you, brother Baron. Thank you, sir. Appreciate Welcome. that. Councilman Byrne, thanks for being with us, spending yes, some time. Sir. We'll look forward to the next visit and the conversation. And definitely the tour. And definitely the tour. Uh, uh, oh, know. yeah. Got to do that. Come on, man. I would love that <laughs> so much. You got to. It's going to blow your mind, I'm telling you. And I'll even treat you to dinner. I'll treat you to dinner. <laughs> oh, 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 well, In a I'm, black restaurant. Where are we going to Sylvia's? <laughs> No, we got some in Brooklyn for you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, thanks, thanks for being with us. But, we'll talk to you soon. Well, I always appreciate being with you and let me freely talk like that. And you know, I really appreciate this this program because you get a chance. And I say this stuff everywhere, but it's love. I love speaking with my people who understand and who who know what it means. And it's not easy. I'm. Some people say I make it look easy, but it is really not easy because they will come at you. They'll call you everything but a child of God, and you get in their, their media, and they hit you. Millions of people will get what they said about you, and you don't get a chance to come back. So you don't know who's believing what, but I believe God.
So be it. <laughs> Thanks for being with us, sir. We'll talk to you soon. Uh, thank you, sir. Appreciate Peace. you. Peace. We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we're going to wind things down. Richard on time for an awakening media part of the black talk radio network for podcasting or live program scheduling hit them up at time for an awakening at gmail.com all insurance incorporated an african-american owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years located at 231 southeastern road in glenside pa with other offices in germantown and west philadelphia call now for commercial insurance quotes homeowners insurance quotes automobile insurance quotes notary and tax services representing over 15 major a-rated insurance companies offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote call this number 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. The Digital Plantation, abibitumi.com, abibitumi.tv, abibitumitv.com, abibitumi.store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger, run to safety. abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. Abibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. Black Power. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. The only word you need to know to join your global commit to you black family, to join your interconnected commit to you black communities, Escape the digital plantation now. Abibitumi.com, abibitumi.tv, abibitumitv.com, abibitumi.store. We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation. A new era, a new phase of the struggle, where we have moved from a struggle for decency, which characterized our struggle for 10 or 12 years, to a struggle for genuine equality. And this is where we're getting the resistance because there was never any intention uh, to go this far. People were reacting to Bull Connor and to Jim Clark rather than acting in good faith for the realization of genuine equality. Do you think white people in this country, and I'm talking about non-segregationists, people devoid 
or thinking they're devoid of racism. Do you have any idea of what they want the Negro to be in America? I think the vast majority of white Americans uh, will go but so far. It's a kind of installment plan for equality. And uh, they are always looking for an excuse uh, to go but so far. And know that this problem needs to be solved and we can't keep relegating it to generation after generation because a few of us got a little money, a few of us got positions, a few of us have wealth while the masses of our people are going steadily down. No one man can rise above the condition of his people. See, brother said responsibility. Is it, is it that we should let them take responsibility to do for us, or should we pool the knowledge that's at the table, the power that's in our community, the wealth that's in our community to change the harsh reality of black life in America? We have to do the job of fulfilling the black agenda. Whites are expert game players in their contests to maintain absolute power. One of their time-honored gimmicks is to point to individual blacks who've achieved recognition. But look at Raph Bunch. Think about Lena Horne or Marian Anderson. Look at Jackie Robinson. They made it as one of those who has made it. I would like to be thought of as an inspiration to our young but I don't want them lied to. Name them for me. The examples of blacks who made it. For virtually everyone you name, I can give you a sordid piece of factual information on how they have been mistreated, humiliated. Not being able to fight back as a form of severe punishment. I come here tonight and plead with you. Believe in yourself and believe that you're somebody. As I said to the group last night, nobody else can do this for us. No document can do this for us. No Lincolnian Emancipation Proclamation can do this for us. No Kennesonian or Johnsonian Civil Rights Bill can do this for us. If the Negro is to be free, he must move down into the inner resources of his own soul and sign with a pen and ink of self-assertive manhood his own emancipation proclamation. Don't let anybody take your manhood. For an Awakening is a proud part of the Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black digital and podcasting platform. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. I want to thank our guest that spent some time with us this evening, activist, organizer, and New York City councilman uh, from the 42nd District, Brother Charles Barron. Richard, 
<clears throat> yes, yes. You know, I, I looked at that site too, and I got it a little twisted. It's a uh, it's seventeen members of Philadelphia City Council, and mm. eleven of them are black. Yeah, eleven of the. Uh, wait a minute, hold. On, let me get that right. It's seventeen. It's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Yeah, eleven of them is black. Eleven of the seventeen are black. Mm-hmm. And being that New York is set, set up similar to Philadelphia, where council kind of drives things, and the mm-hmm. mayors, you know, it's almost mm-hmm. the same setup. Mm-hmm. But what he was describing about when these uh, developers come and, and they they, right. they basically uh, kind of tell you what they're going to do in the community, and these people go along with it. That's how these things, you know. Look at all of the so-called affordable housing that's been built down there in South Philly, my old neighborhood, and your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. It's totally unaffordable to to residents in those communities, but it's affordable to whites. Mm-hmm. They don't have to set it up like that. It don't have to be set up like that, but they're doing it. Just like he said on the program, these neighborhoods don't get changed without black elected officials going along with it. And we control exactly, and we've been talking about that as far as the business, the economic, the economy of these communities don't get changed unless they're going along with it. But unless these things are discussed and people can see it right in their face, how this is happening, they might not understand it because it's so subtle, Richard. Sometimes it's so subtle you don't really understand what's going on. Yeah, but uh, listen, I'm glad he spent some time with us to talk about, uh, you know, the fight that he's doing up there. And the, the uh, listen, he don't pull no punches. Richard. You, oh. <laughs> every time you see him, he he ain't doing, just doing this, being on this program. That's what he does when he's out there. He let the people know exactly what he's talking about. They know exactly who they're dealing with. And I'm glad that, uh, you know, more and more, uh, you know, he talked about the... Uh, uh, the, the radical convention, uh, right. talking about Khalid, he's talking about Brother Namdi, several of them. That's that's all involved. So, you know, we can see these things are moving. Now he mentioned about Los Angeles and all that. Now they wasn't involved at the t- you know the time the last time we spoke to a lot of those men. So you got a lot of people that's just getting involved, Richard. It's time. Yes, yes, it's past time. Listen, before we leave tonight, uh, just want to give the lineup time for the Awakening Media Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. African Perspectives with Brother Oshi. Always interesting topics and dialogue on African perspectives. That's Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Later on in the week, <clears throat> Mississippi on the Move with Brother Patrick Lumumba, the Black Liberation Movement in Mississippi. Uh uh, he's going to be talking pretty soon and probably coming on our program also to billboard the uh, uh, the gathering that, that that's going to be in September down there. I'm going I'm to I'm, I'm put it out when he puts it out, so I'll just let everybody know that there's something big that's going to be happening down in Jackson in September. And uh, right. Brother Patrick will be on to kind of talk about things. Uh, Friday, Time for Awakening is back from 10 until, and on Saturdays from 7 to 9, the Elders of Sankofa with Dr. Janine. James, I want to thank everybody for listening to the program this evening. Lively discussion as always, and we'll be back on Friday, Lord willing, to continue on this path towards an awakening. Peace. Peace.
Children. 